Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we are joined by the now extra crisp sounding Ashley Day. Uh, Ash, how's it going? It's going wonderful. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's lovely to be back. Did our attritional bullying in subsequent episodes um, force you into buying a better microphone? Uh, what, what happened there? Nobody is harder on me than me when it comes to uh, criticism. Uh, so, uh, yeah, when I heard the episode, I was like, oh yeah, I really need to invest in something other than a PlayStation 5 headset for doing podcasts. Um, I enjoyed the bullying, to be honest, because it's just attention. I'm that kind of person. <laughs> if you're acknowledging my existence, I'm happy. Oh, yeah, it's great to have you back. And uh, yeah, this is a great episode to have you on as well, because it's all about the Wii U. We have been threatening for a while to do a Wii U Hall of Fame, or perhaps a Wii U Hall of Infamy. Um, Matthew, how are you <laughs> feeling about uh, visiting this subject finally as a its own podcast episode? Having to sort of unpick some some old old wounds, um, return to some uh, terrifying moments from my past. But um, yes, it should be an interesting exercise. I actually think it's a pretty obvious exercise in terms of how it'll end up. But let's see. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yes, we're going to pick out ten games that represent the Wii U strengths essentially, and uh, much like the LucasArts Hall of Fame or the uh, well, actually I suppose the LucasArts one is the only one we've done. So weirdly, Ash, you've come on on the two um, Hall of Fame format episodes we've done. Yeah, so basically we're going to go through not the entire library of Wii U games, but a massive chunk, some highlights, some lowlights, um, partly for the lols, admittedly. Um, but like uh, out of that, we will construct a ten-game Hall of Fame. So it should be good. Ash, how are you feeling about that episode idea? Does that capture your imagination? For people who don't know, I was working at Nintendo UK for the entire lifespan of the Wii U. I joined a few weeks before it launched, and I left a few weeks after uh, uh, Breath of the Wild came out. So I was there for the whole thing. So, uh, you know, like Matthew, this will definitely stir some memories for me. And I think even if it is fairly obvious what list we will end up with by the end hopefully there's some good kind of anecdotes and insights we can share along the way O&M closed like two years into Wii U so you were far more engaged with the latter half of the console than I was I was like very much a punter for for a lot of the stuff we're talking about so your perspective is invaluable well the first two years is probably like 70% of the catalogue right anyway to be honest (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a little bit of that because I compiled the list for this and uh, I feel like I went through it in sort of like Philip Glass music fast motion that we use like lifespan um so that was uh, that was my experience um yeah my, my one of my best uh, sort of e3 memories ash is you smuggling me onto breath of the world at the nintendo booth when i was on pc gamer that was uh, that was rad as hell that's why i was so sad when you left nintendo because i no longer had anyone who could do that for me it was tough uh, but uh, yeah um cool so ash having you on is a good opportunity to reflect on the magazine games tm a bit more because mm. you know I, I think that this is a magazine that's got a lot of a lot of fans even now and i worked on it for under a year but you were like much a much bigger part of that that magazine's yeah. life than i was so i was curious to, to revisit that a little bit what are the issues you worked on that you're proudest of or that stand out looking back the obvious one is uh, i was there for issue 100 and very very much involved in putting together that issue including doing uh, we did, it was a strange one in that we we did a top 100 games list, which is you know, a fairly obvious thing to do uh, at that landmark. But we also did 100 covers, uh, you know, a massive split run um, with each of the top 100 games constituting a cover, um, which was a really strange way to 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 do a top 100 because your instinct is to pick 
the the you know the hundred best games, the hundred greatest games. But then when you, when you need something that looks good on a cover, yeah. suddenly that starts to change your your, your editorial. Um, so we ended up with a, a fairly strange list with some things that probably you know, in our hearts wouldn't be in a top 100. Um, and, and at the same time, we had, you know, mostly we had free reign. I got some really, like, personal picks in there. So my favourite my favorite game, Shining Force 3 on the Saturn. I threatened to quit unless we put it on the list. Nice. Um, Good use of power. Is, <laughs> um, I don't think anyone really cared. They were like, you don't need to threaten to quit. We'll just, we'll just put it on there. Um, but we also had, like, the, you know, the managing director of Imagine who you know, got quite involved and he wanted to see more kind of, like, uh, you know, very, very early classic games like uh, Elite on there. Um, you know, we ended up with a, a hundred covers that looked really good um, and uh, and a very kind of strange top 100 list, but I think I made it a unique top 100 at the same time. And, uh, you know, to say that I got games like... Shining Force Three and Nights into Dreams and Crazy Taxi onto the cover of uh, of Games TM in whatever year it was, like I don't know, 20, 2010, 2011. Um, that's kind of a, a very proud personal achievement for me. Mm. Um, all Sega games, actually, that I've just mentioned there, um, giving away my true colours. Uh, I get written off as a Nintendo fanboy, but I'm a Sega fanboy. Really, they just they just don't make any consoles anymore. <laughs> did um, uh, Did Moon or Tulip make the cut? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, I think I think that's around about the time I was just discovering those games. Um, I think I probably would have unsuccessfully argued for Chibi Robo uh, around that time. That would like certainly a really striking character to put on the cover, like from an art perspective. Yeah, good color. I do remember within weeks of joining Games TM, they were doing like a Game of the Year awards, and Chibi Robo had come out in the UK that year. Um, and I was very seriously arguing that it should win for like best sound design. But I was on this mag with people who like were only playing like Xbox 360 games, and uh, here was here was this new guy coming in and saying you know, we should give Chibi Robo a Game of the Year award, and it <laughs> it, it, it wasn't taken seriously. And I think I wasn't. Uh, taken seriously as a consequence for for <laughs> several months <laughs> after that, and then they got, then they got used to me and they knew they knew what the deal was. Well, obviously, as a frontier developments employee, I endorse uh, Elite being on uh, one of those covers. Uh, Ash, what about uh, what about other issues aside from that? Ash, my my passion on the magazine was running the retro section. I more or less did that from the day I started to the day I left, which is about five years, um, and that was. You know, that was a really good excuse to just, uh, you know, get in the coverage that really appealed to me on a personal level because nobody on the mag really cared what I did in that section and they just left me to it, which was an enormous privilege, really, when you come in as a staff writer and you're given a, a section all to yourself um, and you and they just say, here's 30 pages, do whatever you like with it. That's that's quite rare, I, I think, in, in print media. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's kind of cool that we were making a print magazine in the age of the internet. So actually getting in touch with classic game developers was easier than than ever, really. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn just tracking people down. Um, and PRs were, were pretty good. You know, for, the, for the Japanese stuff, like um, PRs were good at getting us in touch with uh, legendary game developers who seemed quite happy to talk about their games. So, you know, I ticked off some fan favorites we interviewed Yuji Naka about knights 
um, one of my favorite games, Mr. Driller. I just emailed Namco one day and said, can we do an interview about Mr. Driller? It was like 10 years old at that point. And, you know, it wasn't really a going concern for Namco, but they were really cool. I went, yeah, of course you can. We, you know, the guy still works here. Let's do it. Well, it'd be good if his name was Mr. Driller. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mr. Driller guy. Um, Driller Sam. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that that was that was a lot of fun because it, you ju- it, you know I was just in a position to be able to like put my favorite games front and center in a magazine, which again I think is a pretty rare thing. Um, and it's amazing how you know the kind of the PR barrier really dropped away whenever you were talking about classic games because they didn't need to control the message so much. I, I remember um, at the height of Gears of War um, popularity. I just emailed Cliff Bozinski out of the blue and said, do you want to do an interview about Jazz Jackrabbit? Really didn't think he would get in touch, but he emailed back straight away and said, yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. No one ever talks about Jazz Jackrabbit. He went back to his family home and um, dug all of his like concept art out of the loft that he'd um, drawn when he was a school kid, like on his desk at school, and we, and we got an amazing feature out of it. Um, so it was, really, it was a really great time for that kind of coverage, and I... I you know, I've been out of games media for a while now in, in a in any real sense. And I wonder if um I wonder if it's quite as easy today as it was like ten years ago. Mm. Um when, you know, there are so many more um online media outlets nowadays, a uh, uh, classic game developers getting bombarded with opportunities that they can't all say yes to. Um, I, th- I think I might have been there at like the perfect time, um, especially when a lot of these games hadn't already been written about. So you got, mm. you got to be the first to tell these stories. Uh, yeah, I look back on that really fondly, and I'm just yeah, just really proud of what we did. That era of the mag that you were on, um, particularly like the the sort of like I guess first half, uh, most of it really. Like, um, mm. I, it was like the best games mag in the building, minus retro gamer maybe. Like maybe those kind of two run apart. But at the time, I think I was a bit stubborn about like the mags I worked on and being quite territorial. But in retrospect, they were clearly like the the best, most characterful, most complete mags. And I think like the retro section just added so much color that if you cut it off from the rest of the mag the rest of the mag would be a bit would be a lot more trad um and i think that Mm. yeah it was a it was a place for kind of like weird treasures to sort of um you know to sort of like get their get their moment in the spotlight and i think you did a great job with that so uh, i I think it was i think it was really good for my career as well to be on games tm because I, i think secretly i really wanted to be on retro gamer and just be writing about retro games all the time Mm. but being on a magazine that also covered modern games in every format and, and a magazine that was you know fairly well respected you know it did it did get me that um kind of broad uh discipline across across all kinds of games and uh you know i was lucky enough to go on you know cool press trips which is a big part of the job and i remember the guys on retro gamer were always a little bit some of them were a bit resentful of that they were like oh you know we you know we we're just sitting here in the office all day and you know in your first week you've gone off to Las Vegas to cover the new Rainbow Six game um I didn't really care about Rainbow Six but <laughs> when, when you're like 25 years old and you've never had any money and a, and a publisher goes do you want to go to Las Vegas you're like hell yeah I want to go to Las Vegas uh going around the gambling tables in in your ripped jeans and your <laughs> like your, your three t-shirts that you've owned for 10 years uh is is a, a bit of a uh it's a very typical like games journalist experience I think yeah definitely um, t-shirts yeah, but- splattered in KFC barbecue sport sauce no doubt I know <laughs> 
Were you there? Were you watching me? <laughs> well, that's just like that was my version of that that event, basically that kind of event. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. That that part of it was sort of exotic and exciting. I do even remember people griping about the number of trips he went on. Actually, even that, that's a memory mm. I even have at the back of my head somewhere. Um, yeah, for sure. Any other uh, sort of issues that come to mind, Ash? One day, I think we'll have to do an episode about um, cover meetings and, and putting a cover <laughs> together. Perhaps, I think you might have done something similar already, or at least touched on the topic. <sighs> but uh, yeah. that's that's um, that's a topic of kind of simultaneously great pride and great trauma yeah. um, that we, we don't have time for today. But I, I do remember um, when we did Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, um, which was just called Banjo-Kazooie 3 at that time, and Rare designed uh, the cover for us. They did a bespoke render of Banjo-Kazooie with a wrench, like... Uh, messing around with the Games TM logo, beautiful art, absolutely it was, beautiful. It was amazing, and yeah, I think uh, I think Rick Porter, our editor, got to go and visit Rare, which he was super happy about. And I remember, <laughs> I won't say who, but I remember someone uh, in a managerial position at Imagine. Uh, can I can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember someone at Imagine saying, "There is no way we are putting that twatty bear and that twatty bird <laughs> on this cover." <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, which you know really really took the wind out of our sails. Uh, it, it must be said, um, but it happened. I think uh, eventually, like uh, everyone saw good sense. Like when you, you, you when you have an exclusive of an exciting new game, uh, and you've got a piece of art that was made especially for you. Like how do you like you can't turn that down. Um, I mean, yeah. Despite whether you like Banjo-Kazooie or not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, is that that was objectively amazing art and great access. Uh, But yeah, I've touched upon it briefly, but a a bad cover meeting is one of the key reasons I left Imagine, you know? Yeah, I'd actually refrained from talking about it for quite a long time because it was kind of like, it is like a touchy subject, or nor would I I would expect most people would argue that it resulted in better covers, um, generally speaking, I think it all came down the, to the, the only positive the is when you like stuck to your guns and you and you managed to push through a cover that you really believed in, yeah, uh, and therefore coverage that you really believed in. Uh, but it, yeah, to the, you know going through the ringer to get to that point uh, is um, one one of the hardest first world problems that we have. <laughs> Yeah, the thing is, as well, when I got to Future, they were like, well, you can pick your own covers because you're the editor. And I was like, well, just, uh, great. <laughs> That's how it should be. Yeah, I suppose on that subject, um, Ash, how did you find Imagine changed over time? What was it like in 2011, around the time you left, versus 2006 when you started? So the big difference is that when I started, they had so many games magazines. They, you know, Imagine Publishing had splintered off from uh, Highbury Publishing, um, and as a as a small indie publisher, they'd launch some competitor titles of their own. So, uh, three sixty magazine. Uh, I think they'd launched a mag called Next Three, which is covering PlayStation Three stuff. They'd acquired Retro Gamer, so they had a few games mags. And then Highbury went under, and Imagine acquired all of Highbury's games mags as well. So they've got Games TM, Play, X three sixty, Power Station, a, che- a Cheats magazine. Um, they go play a magazine just about the PSP, if you can imagine that. <laughs> um, so they they did like this mass recruitment drive where they must have hired about ten staff writers all at once, of which I was one of them. Uh, and you just came into this world of like, wow, like this is a huge office full of people very much like me, which is it's an unusual feeling. Like even working in the games industry years later, you don't really get that same feeling. You don't you don't feel like you're surrounded by entirely like minded people because you people come from all walks of life. Um, so it was it was quite an exciting place 
to work in those early days because uh, because of the you know the culture at the company. Um, we were you know we're all very young first first time in this kind of job. Uh, Friday afternoons off, which I think we spoke about last time, so we'd all end up down the pub, and you, you were a really like tight knit team, not just on your magazine but across the whole editorial department. Mm. And the big difference is that by the end, it were I could see. Uh, the writing on the wall for the number of games magazines there it, it had dwindled steadily over those five years um and I, and I think I think now um you know ten years after I left eleven years after I left, if you look at what was you know the the, the imagined publishing parts of future publishing, I think there's only retro gamer left yeah. from those days and and when I left um there were you know there were a few reasons I left one was mostly that I, you know, I'd hit my thirties and I and I couldn't survive on games journalists' salaries anymore. I just couldn't. Um, but one of the other reasons was my friends were all gone uh, mm-hmm. because the you know the mags were closing down, people were going elsewhere, and I could just I could just see this trajectory of oh I'm gonna I'm gonna end up kind of alone here. So it's t- time to make a move, and that's when that's when I went to Nintendo. That rings true with my experience as well, where I was only 25 when I was editing Games TM and when I left, but by that point, you know, you'd gone, John Denton had gone, Matt Hadrian had gone, you mm. know, people I worked with on play, like Tom DeClerc and Chris Reynolds and all these people who sort of, um, you know, obviously Steve Burns, these people who sort of defined my era of Imagine were just sort of gone, and then it just didn't quite feel like the same company anymore. Dave Scarborough was still there, I like Dave, but um, it felt like um, also a thing of I didn't think Games GM would last forever either. It felt like I was sort of stepping stones, escaping from collapsing magazines, basically, which um, Matthew kind of maybe that rings true with you a little bit too. Um, well, I stayed on them until they collapsed. That's the difference. <laughs> I didn't have the foresight to get out. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I also reflected as a super positive time, Ash, especially like being in my 30s where I think like you kind of like me maybe sort of miss how easy it is to be to make friends in that situation you know Mm. what I mean like as an adult like a grown-ass adult you don't make friends with people who have the same interests as readily it's a lot harder um so yeah I'd miss that uh greatly um yeah good times that's that's the thing right just just to be very sentimental for a for a moment you know all those you know all, all but one of those magazines is now gone unless you count the fact that play came back it's not the same play but it looks cool um, so all those mags are gone, but like the friendships remain. Like so many people from from Imagine, I still talk to sometimes on a on a daily basis via like you know WhatsApp and Facebook and what have you. Uh, and that's you know you can't take that away. That's that's such an important part of my life, uh, and I'm you know really grateful for that. I don't I, I don't know if I would have like such a great network of friends had I had I not gone into games journalism Mm, yeah same even being at future wasn't really wasn't quite as sociable wasn't quite as cheerful the teams are a little bit more like islands i would say um but yeah imagine was very much like everyone is at the pub from the Mm. editor-in-chiefs to the you know staff writers and um uh, sub-editors and stuff so yeah like uh i totally totally get you on that um how's team 17 treating you these days are you going to send us a a key or two for dredge (laughs) (laughs) shame Um, I'm sure. I'm sure I can sort you out some keys for Dredge. Um, yeah, it's, uh, Team Seventeen. Uh, what What can I say about a publicly traded company that I work at? Uh, it's you know, it's it's great fun. It's a very different sort of uh, job for for me compared to what I've done in the past. I'm I'm much more in a, um, to be honest, quite a senior managerial position. So 
although we're publishing things that are very fun, uh, like my my day to day is is actually quite serious. I'm you know I spend most of my day in spreadsheets and contracts. Um, it's a surprisingly adult job, and I and I, and I fear that one day they'll realise I am about as far away from an adult as you can possibly get. But it, you know, Team Seventeen is a really kind of special and important um, company for me. Like I'm I'm from Wakefield, you know, the same place that the company originated in. Uh, I grew up playing Amiga games. Uh, I spend most of my days at Team Seventeen trying to get them to bring back um, Alien Breed or do some sort of Alien Breed collection. Uh, I am determined that one day that will happen, but I kind of have to, um, you know, I, I have to I have to do that in between doing the things they actually want to pay me to do, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just to go into like hype mode for a second, we've got a really good uh, year or so ahead with with some some great games, and and yeah, Dredge is one of those. There were a load of previews that came out this week, and it was amazing to see like most most of the. Uh, gaming press like really getting behind it and saying like this this is a game you've got to keep an eye on which uh, as I'm sure you know Sam you're in you're in a similar business to me um, it, you can't take for granted that every indie game published is gonna capture the imagination of people and 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 get people writing about it because there's you know there's only so many journalists and and there's seemingly like a million games coming out every mm. year so mm. when you've got something that people are willing to give up their time to play and write about that's that's really exciting yeah absolutely no i definitely sort of feel you on that one plus like the um the excitement factor that i definitely get from working with you know for a publisher is that when you work with smaller devs or indie devs they are genuinely pumped to have people kind of go to bat for the thing that they're yeah. that they've made that they've poured years into and it's um yeah it's really rewarding and also the amount you learn about game development from being publisher side is just so that's like so interesting mm. that's my favorite bit of the job is like learning how this thing works and then realizing how little i knew when i was a games journalist <laughs> you, you know i think i think about this a lot and if if only the the kind of the economics uh, made it feasible i would love to have done this job first and then gone into games journalism because yeah. i th- i think my access would have been better my understanding of how games are made would obviously have been better and I, th- I think um i think i would have had a much better grasp of what questions to ask in interviews uh, to be honest but it, it's it's not really feasible um to to go from uh publishing to games journalism for various uh reasons so it's, it's a shame have mm. you either of you been watching the double fine documentary not yet but i've, been, I've seen you, your tweets matthew they s- s- sound exciting I'm absolutely obsessed with it because unlike you two, I am completely outside of the process. You know, something like that, which feels genuinely frank in the way they've put it together, mm. is just yeah, like an amazing insight into just sort of how fucked the development process is, like how chaotic and like messy it can be. And especially if you really know, as you do with the Double Fine documentary, what the end product is, like Psychonauts mm. 2, you can sort of see them land on ideas that will make it in the final game and then like dismiss them in the room or in the moment and then spend two years going down a dead end only to return to it and you're like you fools you had it right the first time <laughs> that's what you're going to do honestly um I've, I've seen enough games developed from start to finish now that i can confidently say the same as you know other people have said before is any game that gets finished and released is kind of a miracle <laughs> because it's so difficult to make games. The, the, 
the odds are very much stacked in favor of people failing e even you know the most seasoned developers there are so there's so much wastage in the way games are made because it's all it's all experimental you know every time you make a new game there's there's certain things you can bring in certain learnings and technology from previous games but really you're kind of like reinventing the wheel every single time um, and you start off with a plan and there's no guarantee that that plan will result in um, the the intended experience so often mm. you're you're having to go back and restart things or add on a lot more time than you expected to in in order to um, to really polish it up and, and, mm. and get the product that you need um, mm. so for someone to make a great game you know truly like a breath of the wild of this world uh, you really can't take it for granted it's they, they are like divine miracles as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, we should talk about that documentary uh, in more detail at some point Matthew because uh, yeah yeah we should get it just get it both get it watched and and dig into it because um yeah it's I'm just absolutely loving it I think it's it's amazing and amazingly brave of themselves to open them up open themselves up like that it doesn't feel like a PR exercise at all that's what's kind of cool about it though right is that you know I think so often even on this podcast we've bemoaned the lack of access that you know publishers give people to understand how games actually get made and so when yeah. things like that are put out you should absolutely go and watch them and I mean, understand them you know like yeah you'll never write like you know they phoned it in or these lazy devs or this you know the, the solution to, to people writing that shit on social media or whatever <laughs> is to just prescribe them you have to watch 36 episodes of this um <laughs> and you'll come out the other end and you will never question it again oh, that's really good um okay cool well um yeah looking forward to some of um team 17's output uh this year then ash that'd be um that'd be cool um it's yeah awesome to hear about what you uh what you get up to these days i'm glad it's going so well um just to actually very quickly call back to your last time on the pod um because you were about to release uh kind of your metroidy uh, not mm. bullet heli witch shooter thing um which i know catherine has been the, playing the night witch Yes, and um, Catherine was playing that and very much enjoying that recently, and she's t t telling me about it because I think they oh, they yes. covered That's... it in their Magic Week on RPS. So, oh yeah, they, they yeah they did. I uh, I shared that article with the developers actually, and they they were really pleased to see it. It's. Uh... Yeah, that's one of those games where uh, anytime I see anyone talking about it, uh, it, it warms my heart because I, mm. I think, you know, obviously I'm going to say that every game we publish is is excellent. <laughs> um, but the, the Night Witch, I think, is, is one that really deserves attention, especially listeners of this podcast, because they are people of great taste. <laughs> well, Advertisement Have you been over. on our Discord? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not lately. Not lately. <laughs> So Ash, you listen to the podcast, I think. I don't know if you still do. Yeah, um, I do. do you have any oh, okay, good. <laughs> do you have any thoughts on our recent output? Anything you've heard where you're like, that's fucking egregious, or anything where you're like, I agree with that. Anything that sort of um highlights for you? No, nothing egregious that I can remember, but uh I, I think uh usually if there's something like I don't know, if you if if you guys were to say, you know, Balan Wonderworld is a big pile of crap, I'd be all over you on Twitter and and, and you know that. Yeah. Um There's some uh, things that just they can go unsaid. <laughs> <laughs> that's good well now we know who covered uh yuji naka's bail uh it was ashley day so that's uh that's good how, how are you feeling about the whole yuji naka situation it's it's deeply upsetting to me like i, I genuinely um do like love him as much as you can love a person you don't really know right um I, i've i've met him several times interviewed him uh he didn't he's never ever tried to like uh 
uh, criticise me for hogging a game for too long at a, at a trade show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think I think he's a stand-up guy, um, and I he's do. Just a very do... impatient man, impatient in queues, impatient to make a fortune, just impatient. Uh, I thought you were going to say he never ever committed inside trading when I was interviewing him. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! I didn't uh, directly yeah. ask him about that, so so we never know. But um, uh, what, what, I've completely lost track of, of what the question was. To be honest. Oh, about the, uh, just the podcast. Your thoughts on it, basically? But, yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I think the episode format I am the biggest fan of is the one I'm continuously surprised to hear you suggest isn't that popular or is divisive, and that's Games Court. Oh. All right. You think yeah. that's good? I think it's awesome. I like whenever you do a Games Court episode, I'm like, right, this is getting listened to straight away. I absolutely love it. But um, don't you don't find the actual uh, assessment of the games incredibly flimsy? Because I don't have the, or neither of us have the necessarily the retro brain. That it, do, it, do, it doesn't matter. It really oh, okay. doesn't matter. Uh, not to. I mean, I mean, I am a massive collector of old games, and I I pay sometimes eye watering amounts of money for for things that. You know, if if my family knew what I was paying for old games, I, th- I think they would stage an intervention. <laughs> um, so I, you know, that is that is to say that I do have a very good idea of the value of things, but that's not that's not what makes that show entertaining <laughs> or that form entertaining. It's what makes it entertaining is the 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 like mythology that you're continuously building up uh, around the concept of the games court um it reminds me of your your old podcast matthew the the, the rotating platform you, ha- you had a format on there um uh, space arc oh yeah, yeah. Uh, where you you were canonizing uh, games by adding them to an arc that was leaving a dying planet um and it was fun to hear you know what kind of uh games you were willing to take on the arc but it was even more fun to hear about the uh, the people that were being left burning in the lava <laughs> and how how that story evolved o- over time it's um, yeah it's just um, it's very entertaining and that's oh, what good. podcast should be well I'm glad you like it I always thought that people preferred the drafts to the get to games court but then um, the last games court we did was really popular it was the biggest episode all month it beat out the wow. best it beat out game of the year that we did last year it beat out best games of 2014 like it was I think people actually are really starting to engage with the format and someone pointed out to us that this is a format that's truly yours that no one else does mm. anything like this so that is true um it's funny actually because recently we got a submission that was every single shining force game someone had bought um so that'll come up <laughs> in the next game score and i thought oh fuck i'm gonna hear about it from ash on this one because i know nothing about these like 15 games or whatever so uh, maybe we get ash yeah. in as like a special <laughs> bonus judge <laughs> bonus judge Co- completely unbiased <laughs> Uh, they're yeah, all, like they're all great and they're all worth the money. Whatever, whatever they paid, <laughs> it's worth yeah. it. Yeah, I like the idea of that as Ash is like the Smash Bros trophy judge, you know, just sort of like <laughs> throw him in case of emergency kind of thing. Um, okay, good. Well, I'm pleased you're still enjoying it, Ash, and it's great to have you back on here. So uh, shall we take a great... Uh, sorry. So shall we take a quick break? Take a great break. Oh, have... <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. All right, it's Saturday morning. That's <laughs> uh, not actually Saturday afternoon, isn't it? Uh, I think you've got to keep that in the podcast now, Matthew, because uh, it's quite funny. Um, okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with the Wii U Hall of Fame. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to the podcast. So, the Wii U Hall of Fame. Before we get into it, before we pick our 10 games to represent the Wii U's lifespan, we're going to do a little bit of setting the scene here, the old preamble, classic back page pod nonsense. So, the big question I think about the Wii U is, has the sheer volume of Wii, ga- Wii U games migrating to Switch overwritten the existence of the Wii U somewhat? Will anyone reflect on Mario Kart 8 as a Wii Wii U Classic beyond a handful of people. Uh, Matthew, I feel like I know how you feel about this, but maybe, Ash, you can kick us off. And uh, what, do you, what do you think of this? Do, do the number of ports, is that like erasing the identity of the Wii U by migrating all these games onto a more successful platform? I think to a certain extent, it, it actually is. Yeah, uh, like bec- because I, f- I feel like the, you know, the vast majority of the Wii U's best games are more accessible on the Switch um they're um and they're, and they're often improved on the switch mm. as well if you do own a wii u you know I, co- I considered getting the wii u out of the loft in preparation for for this podcast and i just could, i didn't have the energy yeah <laughs> uh, you know, you know, you, you've got this huge console you've got the gamepad um if you've got a lot of digital games like i have you've got a massive um kind of external hard drive plugged in so you've got like three oh. power supplies and oh. it's just it's just a headache thinking it's so about it. grim that's the one you always forget is the external hard drive power supply absolutely yeah. that's what happened to me this morning actually because i pl- i did plug my wii u in because it was part of the patreon stretch goal that if we hit <laughs> some arbitrary amount i would get the wii u out so i did and i plugged it in and i played a couple of games i haven't played before um and then yeah i did forget about the external power drive and i was like oh why do they not make like just flash memory work with this thing <laughs> it's just such a nightmare uh every single part of it is designed to make life harder than it should be the screen gets so manky as well when you store that thing like it's it's grim oh, yeah. my, my, my sticks were sticky that sounds filthy but uh it's not um so yeah i do think that and it was funny as well when it came to actually like looking at my shelf and being like what don't i have on switch here i think it was like three games ultimately or like four games if you technically count splatoon as well um so yeah i, I, I will say and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this in in more depth there are of course experiences on wii u that will never fully translate to switch if at all um, so the you know I think I think there is still value in that that second screen experience that may you know may never be duplicated or emulated ever again yeah. um, and that's I, I don't know what you want to do with with the Hall of Fame list if it's if it's just like pretending the Switch doesn't exist and it's these are the best games or if it's like mm-hmm. these are the games that have the most value to play on Wii U today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that have the value, I think, would be the ones that really take advantage of the gamepad. I, th- I think it has to be considered in the context of Switch, personally, because it isn't self-contained. And, and, and it's not like instantly, everything is instantly better on Switch. There are there are definitely some things where the second screen means that the superior like mechanical version of this game is still on Wii U. That, I mean, that was definitely part of my thinking, anyway. Do you do you feel the same way about the um the Wii U its existence being overwritten by the Switch ports somewhat, Matthew? Do you think that is just something key to consider? It just doesn't seem like a very sort of self-contained console. It does feel like it's been sort of ransacked a bit. You know, it's not like you know, the classic example is like the Dreamcast, which you know has a sort of similar sort of story in terms of sort of success and is kind of locked away, but has a lot of things which are only on it and are so distinctly of that time and of whatever the Dreamcast sensibility is. And the Wii U has some of that, but almost by porting so much stuff to the Switch and showing that they could live outside of this this quite unique hardware, 
it kind of diminishes that idea of of the Wii U as this. You know, there was a lot of talk about this can only be done on Wii U, and then it turns out it couldn't. Um, and if anything, it got better when you remove that thinking. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a special kind of curio machine like some older sort of failed consoles mm. do. Mm, it's not like the Saturn, for example. Like no. it's yeah, it's not got you know the range of software that you can't get elsewhere, and that is what defines that to a large extent. I think. So I think it's, especially once the eShop is is truly gone, that's that's where a lot of the interesting um, remaining exclusives. Ah, oh, even then, there's not that many of them. Yeah, to be honest. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah. So I suppose, like, then that that kind of I think answers the next question a little bit, which is, what's the Wii's reputation these days? Has it gotten any better or worse since its lifespan ended? And I suppose, Ash, something I would throw in here is, do you not think that the quality of you know switch ports that the Wii U has yielded adds to its reputation somewhat? As in, they've they've added so much value to the subsequent Nintendo console. Does that not mean that in retrospect we have to see this as viable in itself? What do you think? I think over time, through the lifespan of the Switch, a lot of people are, have woken up to what the Wii U did that was cool. The kind of sheer quality of the Nintendo developed experiences that are on there are up up there with some of the best things Nintendo have ever made. Um, and and you do have to recognise that. And as as those games have come to the Switch, I think people have been uh, recognising it. And I, and I think also what they were trying to do with that second screen experience, particularly the like off TV play, that w- that was a stepping stone in their thinking towards the Switch. I don't think you get the Switch unless the Wii U exists as as this kind of experimental prototype. And so you've got to give Nintendo credit for that um mm. i think possibly some of you know i don't i don't particularly want to get into you know the the reasons why the wii u failed like the name i have to acknowledge has something to do with it but i think also the price mm. um it, it was a very expensive compared to the compared to the wii I, I think it's failings what i'm trying to say is it's failings and not really anything to do with the games mm. Matthew, what are your thoughts on that? Because I know that you had some discussion in the Discord this week about working on Nintendo Mag when the Wii U hit and what that represented. So do you want to take it from there? There's a problem with Wii U is like what it was when it was kind of alive and what it is now is quite different things. And in the moment, whatever the weirdness of the kind of hardware itself, you know, like Ash says, there was that quality of games. It woke up a kind of side of Nintendo, like a more core side of Nintendo, which they'd mm. kind of strayed from in Wii a bit. And you suddenly had these incredibly lush, I would say more traditionally like nin- Nintendo core games. But also like the idiosyncrasies of like the Wii U itself in terms of like Miiverse and the characterful decisions in its like interface and its actual like console behavior. When those things were active, they obviously are dead now, were really exciting and kind of gave it this sort of community which was fun on Nintendo mags. I mean, I said on the Discord, like, this was the console that killed Nintendo mags, which is, you know, technically true, but, you know, that's that's like a wider um, commercial you know, failure, you know, thing rather than anything, you know, inherent about the machine. But I do think, like, the, 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 the important thing is, like, it's like a bubble in time. It's like the, what was really great about the Wii and the whole Wii, experience, Wii U experience, you can never have again. Like, even if you still have it, you can't plug it in and enjoy it as it was enjoyed at the time yeah I, I suppose like do you think that the um do you agree with ash's point that the wii's reputation has maybe incrementally improved since then because i think your point about 
core games and that being a divergence from what they were doing on Wii U sorry on Wii was is true um, and maybe something the console didn't get enough credit for at the time that they were making these things that felt more trad um, how do you think its reputation stands these days I obviously love the Switch and I, I love what it's become but like when they like announced it and when they first kind of you know they were showing it off and everything you know I, I didn't it didn't scream like this is going to be a mega success that it became it wasn't like worlds away from the kind of the weirdness of the pitch of the Wii U it had the same kind of golf in power compared to what everyone else was doing which you know a lot of people attribute to kind of Wii U struggling it's like it's just really after you know it, just as you're coming into like Xbox One and PS4 to have a thing which can barely compete with 360 in some of its ports seemed like particularly egregious to, to some people. Mm. Um, and the, the, you know these things are true of the Switch. You know the the, the Switch has a, a very similar kind of power gap between it and what other people are doing. But just by like the the success of it it forces people to kind of engage with it. It forces people to kind of like meet it halfway. It forces developers to meet it halfway. And like, that could have happened with Wii U if it had been big enough. You know, there's, I, I don't really see like what's completely different other than a certain something that happened, whether it's a huge marketing success or, you know, the particular launch games or the promise of Breath of the Wild that kind of like turns, you know, gives Switch the the initial foothold that the Wii U never had. Like, yeah, I was to say, a couple of things there. Like, I think portability and form factor, they were the key things, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it just, that was incredibly appealing to people. And, you know, um, sheer volume of software, right? Obviously having Breath of the World out of the, out of the gate. And, like, yeah. I think Wii U was kind of confusing in the sense that you had this gamepad, but you couldn't take the games with you. Um, yeah, that was a little I bit think... of a half, half measure, you know? Yeah, but like I, you know, if if you if you I know say if you strip away all that because obviously all that is really important, but like fundamentally, like what Nintendo were doing as game makers was not different on Wii U to what they did on the Switch. Yeah, like they were good, like they were they were as good as they needed to be on Wii U, and they've just continued that run. And and, and to your to your point, that's why those Wii U games that have been ported to Switch have sold so incredibly well, particularly Mario Kart Eight. Which I think must be one of the best-selling like traditional games of of all time. Um, it, yeah, it really wasn't about the games. I think I think it was a, about the the hardware and and making what the hardware did fit into uh, the lifestyles of, of of the of the games buying public. Mm. Um, and I, I think the, the the switch tapped into that so much better. Because um, it it was just so much easier to communicate the the value of the hardware. Yeah, I, I yeah I don't want to say like you put these things side by side and you're like you know that these were like separated at birth and one ended up being successful and one didn't. Mm. Like I I appreciate one is has many more flaws, but it's not like in terms of what they actually do, it's not that different. Like I wonder what 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 is the Wii U story if it launches day one with Mario Kart Eight mm. and getting just the kind of buzz and like yeah. you know just the because by the time Mario Kart 8 does turn up it's it's too late you know even like a year or a year and a half into Wii U it, like the Wii U's fate is kind of decided I feel no it's a, it's a good point I think that like I, I remember back to the the time where I bought a Wii U and it was galvanized by going to E3 2013 playing Bayonetta 2 and Mario Kart 8 um you know uh Mario Brothers uh sorry 3D 3D World and uh, you know, just this um, Wind Waker HD, and it was this really convincing array of stuff that made me think, you know, 
I I need to own this. So I went and bought one and I got back from E3. And so, you know, that's I remember clearly in, in the moment thinking this is exciting. But yeah, because it just didn't have that instant foothold. You never got to see people make use of the features in ways where they could truly, you know, kind of like light up your imagination. I think it's weird, actually. I was playing Star Fox Zero this morning, right? And that is not, that's not a particularly beloved uh, Wii U game. But as I was like looking at the two different perspectives of like a cockpit view on the um, gamepad and then like a kind of wider dogfighting view on the, on my TV screen, I was there thinking, well, this is something that Switch can't do. And so, you know, obviously you do have the detachable controllers, the lovely form factor, all that stuff. But there is that thing of like, well, there is something Nintendo-y here baked into the very concept of the hardware that the Switch doesn't have. That actually kind of like, and that that alone I think makes the Wii U worth respecting in some way. It is innovative. It's just because it never had the support, you never got to see people bring the best out of mm. it. I think that, that first kind of six months of, of the console really has a lot to answer for and i felt it particularly working at nintendo because we we launched the system and then there was there was nothing for months and 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 i'm when i say nothing i'm not exaggerating there was there was nothing it was a very long drought i i remember we you know there was nothing to do (laughs) in in the office like we you know like go for two and a half hour lunches because there, there was nothing to do um and we, we were so bored and we were like I, honestly i remember being quite worried i went into the wii u launch very enthusiastic as i do with all nintendo consoles but once the dust settled and we were looking at the re- release schedule i was like this there, there there's really like there's nothing here to get people excited and and to motivate them into you know give them the faith that they can buy this console knowing that there's there's great games coming um i remember i think it was zen pinball 2 came out on the um, (laughs) e-shop um and we spent um in the office we must have spent about three weeks just hammering the spider-man table on zen pinball 2 (laughs) and doing nothing else um, because there, there was nothing there was no work to do there were no games to get our heads around i think um I think it was when Lego City Undercover came along. That was finally the moment where we were like, ah, like a game, a game we can sell that isn't on other platforms, isn't a, a port of something that came out two years ago on the Xbox 360. Right. Um, and and I, I think, um, yeah, I think that first six months, I think they lost a lot of momentum and then they bounced back. You know, they announced um, Wind Waker HD. They had that awesome E3, like you say, um, Sam, with you know, Mario Kart and Bayonetta. Um, but by then, PS4 was coming along, and I think I think they just never made up that lost ground, really. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. That's um, so it, wild. The idea of you just sitting around playing Spider-Man. I'd love yeah. if that's what was happening in like Nintendo of Japan, too. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just got Spider-Man pinball mania. Uh, um, Matthew, do you think there's anything about the Wii that you, you miss in the Switch, or anything you'd like to see carry across into future Nintendo hardware from this? I mean, I, I did love Miiverse. Uh, I thought it was just such a, a uniquely Nintendo take on on a kind of social network. Um, 
like the way it was kind of pulled into games was was really cute and they've been able to like mimic it you know the functionality in splatoon 2 and 3 you can like basically draw what army verse posts but the idea of it being baked in like the one thing which is like a, a bit of a bummer about the switch is it's 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 so utilitarian you know in its kind of like interface you know it just it just plays games and it, and the games are amazing and it gets on with it and you know i kind of appreciate the unfussiness i definitely i'm not advocating for a return to the um like the brutal loading screens between options menus on the wii u which makes <laughs> it like quite foul to use um but just the character like the me plaza with everyone running around and the noise of the wii u like when mm. i do turn it on like that weird kind of like tingly background music the kind of like the weird kind of synth bells or whatever that play in the background it, it just has it has a nintendo character that the switch just does, has none of really it's, it's almost like embarrassed like is there a single switch banger tune like on console tune that anyone can hum <laughs> no no, no there isn't do you, do, but do you do you remember how bad the operating system loading times were before they patched it? Oh, it was hot, awful. Be- because of all the stuff they jammed but in. It, and it's bad now, but it was originally like, I mean, but that minutes. thing was just horrible to use. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I think that like, uh, yeah, it's sort of, I turned it on this morning and had this feeling of, oh, this is so sincere as a, as an interface for a console like or you like say just that that sort of odd soundscape of the me sort of making noise in the background and the the drawings and things like that and you're like well this is you know this is almost like i don't know in a world that has sort of people playing call of duty and stuff i could see why this was just rejected outright as a vision of the internet and online interaction everything is just much colder elsewhere but that was one area where nintendo could kind of make their own mark and make something feel warm in a way that was quite mm. um yeah quite pleasant i would say yeah. um how, how about you ash is there anything you miss uh from the wii u that you wish you could see in future nintendo hardware yeah i i, I we've touched on it upon it but i miss miiverse so 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 much it is it is the most positive friendliest most creative social media platform there's ever been in my opinion um, and you know, I used to love just scrolling through and seeing like the amazing uh, illustrations that people had done, just with you know that squishy gamepad and the stylus. It, you know, an incredible community on there. Um, it led to awesome memes with you know like why why can't Metroid crawl? Is like a real that is a definable moment in video games <laughs> culture that you know wouldn't happen without the Wii U and Miiverse. Um, and they and they integrated Miiverse into into their games in some really interesting ways as well like ways that sadly now when you go back to those games you can't, you you still even on the Wii U you can't really experience them in exactly the way oh, they were intended like loading up Wind Waker HD and it's like here's a tingle bottle and you can put messages in it and send it to other players except you can't do that anymore so yeah. you're literally carrying around in your inventory this item which is just like redundant and has no purpose in the game it's it's a bit of a ghost world in a way <laughs> that's funny um yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. I'll, yeah, it's nice to hear your sort of lived-in perspectives on this stuff. Um, I do agree. The positivity, yeah, is just such a key element. And I think that as time goes on and social media becomes more and more unpleasant. I mean, just this morning, fucking Twitter's turning off two-factor authentication on your phone or some bullshit, and it's like, I don't know. It's just some kind of escape from this. Some some version of this that's not as heinous. Um, you know that. It does seem quite um some quite appealing um, by comparison. It's what um, I'm, I'm really pumped for Lucy's next game. The is it video verse that she's yeah, yeah, working yeah. on? Because that's yeah. like that pulls a lot of cues from me verse. So 
will have yeah. a nostalgic hit of Miiverse in some oh. form. So. I've literally never heard of that. I, think I clearly need to get on it. It sounds great. Did you not listen to our visual novel episode, uh, Ash? <laughs> I don't think I did. The, oh, occasion, yeah. Occasionally, oh. I will say there's an episode I, I, I skip. Um, <laughs> I, I skip the Hitman one. Never played a Hitman game. <laughs> if it's not Games say. Court, I'm not interested. That's the... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I need layers and layers of deep Matthew Castle Island fiction. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that, really that isn't the visual novel episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lucy was a great guest, though. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I recommend listening to, go back to that. To that. Yeah, she talks a bunch about the game, so um, yeah, definitely um, check that out. Uh, so yes, um, Ash, I suppose, obviously as someone who had you know some inside perspective of what was going on with the, the Wii U throughout its lifespan, mm. talk a bit about that, and like you mentioned there, the launch, it was super, super slow. Over time, did it get better, then worse again? What was the sort of journey there? There were a couple of moments very early on where alarm bells started to ring for me. One was my job interview. Um, where the uh, marketing director said to me, we really need somebody who can explain the Wii U to people. <laughs> I thought, oh, hang on. <laughs> you oh. might have a problem here. <laughs> right. um, but, but of course, I was like, yeah, I can I can do that. I can single-handedly market this machine. Don't you worry about it. So yeah, that was that was an early alarm bell. And then the the launch, I was, I was there for, you know, there was a midnight UK launch uh, where we had Chandra on stage Mm. Um, at HMV Oxford Street and I remember going to that and it was like really like there was basically like no one there yeah uh, and that was that was another thing where I was thinking hang on a minute like if Nintendo aren't willing to put the money behind this launch like do they know something I, whoa, like, whoa 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 they did, got Chandra <laughs> <laughs> did he get paid for that I'm not sure um <laughs> Uh, he'll have done it for the glory. The the demos that played at that launch was the rest of the O&M team, because I was there behind the scenes with Joe, and we were playing like the other characters in like the Nintendo Land demos and things like that. If you if you contrast that with the way they announced Switch, remember they announced Switch in a live stream, and then like the either the day after or the next day, you could go to an event in London where it was like a you know like a professional it was like E three in London and you could play every oh it game. was great that was a really good event yeah um you you could you can really contrast how confident Nintendo were in the Switch compared to launching Wii U like I think they knew in hindsight that it, it was going to be a bit of a fallow period uh, and yeah that like like I was saying earlier that that kind of feeling really started to sink in as we saw the release schedule and then you know the our our as a fan working on the inside my relationship with the Wii U kind of went in peaks and troughs as these like glimmers of hope would start to come along so yeah they announced Wind Waker HD I remember when they announced um Hyrule Warriors and it was our most watched Wii U trailer at that point <laughs> And thinking, oh well, this is it. Hyrule Warriors is gonna save everything, and nah, that's just because it was a Zelda game. <laughs> it was a difficult time. But I also remember, um, I remember one of the kind of previous PR managers who'd since left the company um, and had been there in the Wii days, which were insanely um, successful. I remember him saying to us, "I'd, I'd rather have been here in the Wii U days uh, because." you're promoting the kind of games I actually want to play. It's more it's more like the GameCube era. Yeah. Uh where you you're a bit of an underdog and and you 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 know you've got Nintendo in like survival mode where they you know they know it's an uphill struggle so they're just pumping everything into the creativity and quality of their games. 
that does make it really exciting when those games do eventually come you can hold your head up high and be incredibly proud and feel confident shouting about them um mm. so when when those glimmers of hope came along um you know, particularly going to E3, I never went to E3 as a games journalist. I just never really got the opportunity. But I went several times with Nintendo, um, and it was always very exciting because they they made their stages at E3 almost like like a theme park, and they in in many cases they would center them around a single game. So for for Breath of the Wild, going into this enclosed space that felt like you were in Hyrule and it had the the sounds and it had like wind like indoors mm-hmm. <laughs> um just just really like a, a special experience that um obviously can't translate to anyone sitting at home playing on their Wii U's it's a privileged experience um but it did it did make it very exciting and you you would get a little mm-hmm. bit carried away thinking oh well yeah this this is this is going to save Wii U that's going to Super Mario Maker is going to save Wii U because you just can't do this kind of game on any other platform but it it was all a, it was all a little bit too little too late in uh, in retrospect um but none of that takes away from how exciting it was for me to be like on the inside as a fan you know i, I think i've told these stories before but like you know rubbing shoulders with miyamoto going uh, swimming with him going swimming <laughs> with him having a curry with him um you know go, going to e3 and seeing uh you know animal crossing guy like asleep on a on an office chair uh, uh, behind the scenes on the E3 booth, asleep with a 3DS in his hands, uh, is Quite. like a, a beautiful memory, <laughs> like a really <laughs> strangely cherished memory that I have. Um, probably also worth mentioning that um, by mostly by coincidence, I ended up working at Nintendo with um one of my mates from back home like one like legitimately one of my best mates and we worked on the same team together that was a really surreal experience to be like both of us going to e3 for the first time and just completely um like fanboying out together like just was that jonathan yeah jonathan did you did you meet him yeah 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 Yeah, so yeah we're, we're both from wakefield and we worked at game station together in like the year 2000 um so you know, I like the idea still of you, now. The, the pair of you standing over a sleeping Iguchi going, we've made it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was pretty much it. Um, I, I remember that first E3 as well. What Nintendo would do um, with their employees before E3 started, they would give you a private showcase of all the new titles that were coming up. Um, because, it, you know, Nintendo's so secretive, you didn't know what was being announced before mm. you got on the plane. You found out, like, the day before everyone else, and, and you were kind of told, like, this is the messaging, this is why it's going to be important to Wii U this year. Um, and for that that first one that we went to in 2013, the briefing was actually done by um, Iwata, um, right. which uh, w- definitely wasn't always the case. Um, and we, we got into this auditorium inside a big hotel in Los Angeles. Everyone's filing in. It's mostly Nintendo America employees, a few Europeans. We're very excited, me and my mate Jonathan. Uh, and we see that the entire front row is completely empty. So we're like, right, we're, we're getting on that front row. That's that's where we're sitting. Get, you know, get a prime view. Um, and we're sitting there. We're thinking, why is nobody else getting on this front row? Like, what? Absolute idiots. They're, they're going to miss out. And then, as everyone was settled and ready for the show to start, some doors opened at the si- at the side, and filing in, Iwata, Miyamoto, Reggie, <laughs> and we were in their seats. 
and they and it was brilliant they just came and they sat next to us and they said nothing and we were, we were sat with the big boys i was thinking oh my god i'm getting fired <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah that um that kind of like naivety and fanboyism um while working on the inside uh, yeah it made made for some special memories for me so it all worked out for me oh, i love it it's such a gutsy move <laughs> oh, that's pretty amazing. That's great. Uh, that's kind of like, how come you didn't stick around during the switch days, Ash? Were you just ready to move on, do something else at that point? I yeah, I'd been I'd been there a while by then, you know, about five years. Uh, much like Imagine, like the culture of Nintendo UK was changing. You know, great friends had been and gone. Uh, Jonathan had gone off and and done something else. Lots of other friends had moved on. Um, there was a bit of a management change as well. A lot of senior UK people who'd been there for decades. Um, started to to move on and were replaced by um, kind of Nintendo Europe employees, and it it suddenly overnight became a lot more corporate. And I think I think that was because they knew uh, as they were coming up to the launch of Switch, they couldn't muck about. Um, it had to go well, so they they put a lot of their best people in place and people who were connected. Uh, more to Nintendo of Europe management and Japan management, um, which was was great. It was exactly exactly what the business needed. But on a personal level, uh, yet again, I was thinking, oh, like you know, the 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 kind of people and the culture, which is really important to me, is changing, and it's it's never it's never going to come back once people have gone. They're they're gone. Uh. And at the same time, so you know, some life things happened. I wanted to uh, move home. I'd lived down south for half my life at that point and I want to move back to Wakefield so um, a job came up at Team 17 um, more or less in Wakefield um, and it just seemed like the the right time to go and do that um, and I remember um, Ryan King who I th- you know Sam definitely knows I don't know Matthew if you yeah, yeah, I know, know him yeah. uh, I don't know if you've ever spoken to, about him on this podcast before but an, another kind of magazine kind of legend in the in the UK games mag industry I remember going for a meal with him and telling him that I was leaving Nintendo to go to Team 17. And he said, how is it that every single job you get is always exactly the job you should be doing? Right. <laughs> uh, which I, 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 I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I, I took that as um, took that as a great compliment, but also like um, a bit of a um, uh, an acknowledgement that I am pretty lucky here. I've, I've, I've had a kind of career where I can just go and do the things that I enjoy with with people that I like so quite thankful for that it's all it's all worked out really well well yeah, good great. for you Ash thank I, you I wish you well in your new role as uh, Yuji Naka's attorney that's, uh, <laughs> that's a good transition for you again always the thing you're meant to be doing um, <laughs> okay great Let's get into the Hall of Fame then. Um, first of all, lads, uh, for some reason I didn't have Hyrule Warriors on the list. So I've just added that to 2014. Sorry about mm. that. Um, don't know how I managed that. I don't think I've missed any other major ones. Uh, cross his fingers. Uh, let's see. So how we've done this, we've got a rundown of all the notable games we're going to go through in release order. This is mostly based on European release. You might see a couple of things come up slightly earlier than um, where they're supposed to be. Um, I, I tried my best to compile this uh, factually, but I just realised that Captain Toad Treasure Tracker is in its Japanese release year and not its uh, UK release year. Either way, it's mostly chronological. It's not every game, and it's certainly not every forgettable port. There are an absolute ton of those. But it's a range that covers the key beats and throws in a few punchlines too. Going into this, Matthew, is there anything else we should establish about the criteria? What we should do? What we should 
what approach we should take in building this 10-game Hall of Fame. Do you think that a Wii Hall of Fame needs to have a one-of-everything approach? Or do you think it's more about, like, do we build a library that accentuates its strengths in a landscape that's where the Switch has got a lot of its best games? What do you think? I think we have to be accepting that, like, these won't necessarily be the 10 best games on Wii U, mm. um, but they're the 10 games that are most indicative of Wii U. Some of the very best experiences, really, I, I just don't think of as Wii U games anymore in like any way, shape or form. I don't know if I ever really did. Like, even at the time, they didn't feel like oh, this could only happen on Wii U. If you were to take the Metacritic of our eventual list, it might, it might be a bit wonky compared to what you expect. It's not the 10 highest scoring games is the short version. Okay. Ash, what do you think? I broadly agree. I, th- I think there's, there's a couple where, the, you know, a couple of the games that did get ported to Switch where... I have such fond memories of them. It's going to feel wrong not to include them, but I think I think you know if, if what you want is an interesting list with value, I think we need to concentrate on what can the Wii U bring today in 2023 that is you know is worth buying one for, is worth dragging out of the loft for, yeah, and and, and will and will help it you know stand the test of time another ten years from now when when inevitably I think a lot of these games still will not have been ported to anything. Mm. Okay, I'm not sure there's 10 games that'll get me to drag it out of the loft <laughs> that may be that time may have passed Okay, cool. Let's get into it then. So, uh, yeah, there's no there's no exact order here other than release order, and the games I've picked are, I think, are probably the ones that are most worthy of conversation, or again, there might be a few punchlines in here. Let's start with Batman Arkham City Armored Edition, which asks the question, what if we released Arkham City, but Batman had electric fists? Um, Matthew, thoughts? I mean, that, that is literally it. That is, that's, <laughs> that is all this game has going for it, is he has electric fists and uh, added... Some of his gadgets onto the gamepad in a way which made them fiddlier than they were in the base game. Also, this fits into the weird category of you only get one of a trilogy on the Wii U, which <laughs> yeah. is inherently unsatisfying because you're playing like full price brand new game when everyone else is buying pre owned copies of Arkham City for like 10 quid on the 360. <laughs> um, see also Mass Effect 3. <laughs> That's the funniest example, isn't it, Mass Effect 3? Uh, yeah. But they did actually make the effort to port these, though, right? Like, they did have the interface and stuff. That was something they yeah. did, at least, you know. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I always felt a bit, it was a little bit flimsy, the whole kind of, oh, this is so much better that you can steer the Batarang looking down instead of, like, all that changes is your neck cranes down. You know, <laughs> It's not, like, any different. What's your broader take, Ash, on like um, ports of 360 PS3 era games to Wii U? Yeah, I think I think Batman and Mass Effect Three they're, they're emblematic of. I don't know if they're emblematic of uh, a strategy Nintendo had to court uh, like the Xbox 360 generation, or, or if or more more likely it's that they'd courted developers who were willing to support the system but were not willing to spend a lot of money doing mm. so uh so it's you know relatively easy to put these games on there um but it was just either way it was a flawed strategy like no one was buying a wii u 
uh, to play games that came out several years earlier on on other platforms, uh, often at full price as well. Mm. I might add. Um, so you know, Batman uh, Arkham City is, I, I think, it's legitimately one of the best games ever made, but it, it's it's not a canonical Wii U game. Yeah, I think that actually some of these ports did did them no favors of making creating comparisons to the PS3 and 360 in people's heads, um, yeah. which is not ideal. Okay, it's a it's a no from us, Dork. Next one. Um, <laughs> you can say that after every one. <laughs> it's gonna be a fucking yeah. Th- we'd definitely be kill that catchphrase for good. Dolkfest. Um, <laughs> uh, new Super Mario Bros. U uh, available on Switch. Um, now, Matthew, I know you don't have loads of love for this series. Neither do I, to be honest, but what's your take? This feels like a sort of remnant of Wii-era Nintendo, like very stripped back. I always found them quite charmless. Like, mechanically, they're absolutely fine. Um, they've got some lovely level designs. I really do like the wish- the mission mode that they added for the Wii U version. Just really nice tasks that draw out the kind of intricacies of, of Mario's like moveset. I always felt this felt very unloved compared to the 3D Mario games, and I just can't get over that. Well, this this allowed Nintendo to say, hey, we have a brand new Mario game at launch on our new console, um, but there's something a little bit hollow uh, about that sales pitch because, it, it yeah, it is a... Uh, you know, it's a hangover of that kind of Wii and DS era. It's the casual Mario lineage. Um, I think it's a perfectly fine Mario game. It's it's mm. solid. It's fun. It looks really nice, actually. I think for for the time, and I wish it had, had more of those. There's there's like a world that almost looks like a, um, a like a canvas painting. Oh, it's like the like the Starry Night painting. Yeah, that world like really stands out as a bit of an oddity among the rest of the game and I wish they'd yeah. doubled down on that and gone for a more kind of, you know, if every world had been based on a different kind of painterly art style, that would make it a really interesting Mario game um, so I don't really know what happened there um, yeah, perfectly good game if if we're honest, probably the best game in the launch lineup. Oh, I don't know about that interesting. Well, we'll yeah, we'll, we'll see um, but yeah, like who cares? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, it's a no for that one. Plus, you can just go play on Switch, so that's yeah. fine. Um, okay, surely this is our first entry. Nintendo Land, minigame compilation that shows off what the hardware can do. This is the one that lent heavily into the sort of asymmetrical experience, which you could arguably only get uh, on Wii U um, in its Mario Chase, Animal Crossing Sweet Day, and Luigi's Ghost Mansion. Um, you finally saw some of the kind of magic of Pac-Man versus, but in a way which is sort of baked into the system so everyone can enjoy it, i.e. games where one person has a private view on a gamepad and that gives them power or vulnerability in some cases and you are against everyone on the TV. I think Nintendo Land's full of great ideas. I think it has loads of it taps into like all the weird functionality of the gamepad like second screen aside you know it's a touch screen there are gyroscopes you know there's there's some other interesting stuff going on with it the big mark against it is that it requires so much other stuff to fully enjoy in terms of like extra controllers and nunchucks it's a really like unsexy day one experience of opening it up and then it's like oh i need all this other shit to sort of enjoy this I could really understand punters not liking that. Obviously, on a magazine in an office where we were laden with remotes and nunchucks, we could play this game as it was meant to be played, you know, a full house in all the multiplayer modes. And, mm. uh, you know, we probably I probably played this way more than I played Wii Sports in hindsight. Like, I, I, I think this is like a definitive Wii U game. 
Yeah, I think I, I played this twice in its intended form at uh, your colleague Matt Elliott's house, Matthew, uh, years right. ago. Um, <laughs> but I did, I, I did think it was real magic, and it was the first time I think I really took the multiplayer gamepad experience seriously um, because I saw it used in such um, you know exciting ways. Um, mm. So even if it you know doesn't extend massively past this, it's it certainly it certainly was. Um, yeah, I could see why it'd be exciting in the moment, and, you know, and like a big sort of like nostalgic play as well you know this could have been a a world of me's but they actually did quite a lavish job of kind of bringing in all this sort of weird nintendo ip you know there's like a big pikmin component to it and takamaru's ninja castle for all the fans (laughs) (laughs) Um, but i mean not all the games are gold um some of them i would have liked a lot more of like there's that i quite like the one where you uh, tilt the controllers to steer like donkey kong's little minecart around i could have played like a, 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 you know more of a substantial game of that but you know it was good enough what about you ash were you a big nintendo land guy yeah kind of i, I do remember having some you know I, I took the wii u home that uh that christmas and i remember having some family gatherings where people who don't normally play games would get into it and and they you know it, in some ways it was the Wii Sports of the Wii U. It was something that really showed off the unique hardware features and was designed for um, people of all skill levels to to play together. But that was somewhat contradicted by these like Smash Brothers style like deep cuts of Nintendo references. That right. <laughs> you, you, like in some cases, only appeal to even the most hardcore fans. Yeah, like the, yeah. the Takamura's Castle thing. That, that's a Famicom disc system. Right game, a Japan-only <laughs> release. Um, so I was delighted that something like that was being referenced, but it, um, you know, I, d- I don't know what it achieved on a, a business level for Nintendo. Um, and I think I think Nintendo Land now is kind of it's almost like a glimpse into a parallel dimension of what if the Wii U had taken off? What if people had um, really enjoyed all of the unique hardware features? Would we have seen? A Nintendo Land 2, 3, would we have seen these ideas um, mm. evolve and become more kind of refined and interesting as it went along? It's kind of an evolutionary dead end, really. It didn't really yeah. happen. Um, and that ma- that makes it hi- historically quite interesting. So I, I would say like this, you know, I, I, even though I don't think it's the best game in the launch lineup, I think it's the one that most deserves to be on a Hall of Fame. Okay. It was, it was our most played one. That's I, th- I think maybe that's what I'm equating with best. Um, but I do like the idea of an alternate history where we end up with Manita as a playable character in Smash Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, great. Well, we've got our first game there. Um, I feel like this one's probably not going to make the cut. Rabbids Land. I don't know what this is. I can probably <laughs> guess what that. it is from the title. <laughs> okay. Okay, then. That's uh, that's a no from Matthew Dog. Okay. Tank, tank, tank. Um, uh, which we used to joke is what was happening on to this console. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's really good and dark for someone who was working on an official Nintendo magazine. Is this good, Matthew? We had to do an advertorial for um, Tank, Tank, Tank. I think this was a Namco Bandai thing. The, the only thing I remember about it is, is it used the camera on the game pad, because I remember it had a camera too, to like project your face into, like, maybe you fought a boss monster that was like a photograph of your own face or something. I was rubbish. I think we played it for like the length of time that was we were contractually obliged to play it for the ad- advertorial. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so that's a no. Ash, any contradictory opinions on this? Or uh, I will say, say fun- no? funnily enough... Um, 
this is an arcade port uh, of a very obscure arcade game and last week I saw the arcade game in an arcade at the seaside uh, and I was very excited to see it but I wasn't excited enough to play it so that <laughs> well, that's tells you everything <laughs> oh, fuck yeah this is why we bring you on this podcast your deep knowledge of arcade machines and then lived in experiences of seaside towns with arcades in them that's uh, that's a good combo uh, Zombie U um, which did seem like if you think about the limited handful of third-party support kind of titles on Wii U. This is definitely one of the more significant ones. Matthew, was it a big deal to you that Ubisoft had chucked a bunch of money behind something like this? This is sort of the red steel of Wii U. Not not just because of the the Ubisoft link. People kind of play it as a kind of core game and go, eh, I'm I'm sure the Wii U will do more than this or better than this down the line. And actually, in the long run, it's proven to be not true. You know, like, actually, it's quite indicative of what the Wii U was capable of in the same way that I think over time Red Steel proved that is really what what a first person game would feel like on Wii, on Wii back then mm. um, I'm not trying to defend Red Steel in that I'm just saying that is how it worked um, I think this I actually think this is a contender in mm. that this is its definitive platform like they ported it elsewhere where it made no buzz at all it's got this like interesting kind of Dark Soulsy. you know you die you have to go back to where you died and kill your now zombified self to get back your equipment which i always thought was quite cute and i do think the idea of pulling you into the second screen for like inventory management and looking at the map while the action continues real time on the top screen does lean into a tension that is part of the kind of zombie survival fantasy Mm. at the time didn't blow me away but has uh, sort of grown in my estimations as not a horrible wii u game (laughs) yeah ash i'm gonna guess that you quite like this game I, I love this game. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go then. Um, I, I remember uh, when I was still on. Uh, oh, this is a weird memory. Uh, when I was still on Games TM, I, I flew out on a press trip to Nintendo Europe to see and play what would have been the launch lineup of Wii U. I also, on that press trip, had my first job interview for working at Nintendo, <laughs> uh, which was was really strange. So we like ducked away from uh, the kind of PR machine for a while and went and sat in the Nintendo cafe and I had my job interview, which felt a little bit like a conflict of interest. But let's yes. not worry about that. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> uh, it's, it's ten years ago. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, but I remember playing Zombie U at that event, um, and then speaking to uh, one of the PR people at Nintendo, and I, I was uh, saying like, I think you seriously need to get behind this third-party game. Like, the, this is the game for hardcore gamers that kind of shows off what's interesting uh, about mm. the Wii U. I don't think they ever really got behind it, although I think there might have been a hardware bundle, like a very limited one, at one point. One of the things I really loved about this game is the kind of like the risk reward nature that the gamepad brought to it. So I remember you mm. would manage your inventory on the Wii U gamepad, um, but the game would carry on in real time while that was happening. So you were like looking down at this second screen without being able to see the the kind of dangers of the zombies on the TV screen. And that, that was a really interesting concept, and it got my mind racing in terms of, oh, well, what will what will Resident Evil on Wii U be like? And like well, it didn't really happen, did it? Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, think, I think it's a legitimately great game. It was eventually ported to other systems, but I think it inevitably lost a lot of what made it special. Bonus points as well for technically being a sequel to a 1980s Amstrad CPC game called Zombie, um, 
that that has no bearing on the quality of the game, but I'm going to give it bonus points anyway because it appeals to my particular quirk. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think this I think this is a really cool game. Again, it's kind of like oh, what could what could have been um, if every developer had have in- invested this much imagination in using the Wii U, we could have had all sorts of interesting games. Um, yeah, w- well worth a revisit, I think. I think they should go in for now, uh, Matthew. Mm. Maybe it'll come out when we do the sort of like long list at the end and decide. Yeah, but I think I've, it's... I've, I've marked this in in red on my plan as something that that is probably worthy of inclusion. Okay, awesome. Um, in it goes then. Uh, that's two games so far. Uh, Nano Assault Neo. I don't really know what this is, Matthew. Twin stick shooter set on sort of three D microbe. You're on like organic cells and matter. Made by Shinnen, who made often very shiny like downloadable games on Wii and Wii U who I was never very into I must admit I think they had a very nice engine that they made for for that worked and gave like passably pretty games on Wii and Wii U but I I never really thought they held up as as actual games but they were championed by people who were hungry for graphics Hmm. it's my big shin and take that's a big shin and take. That's what we're here for. Yeah, it's just kind of there, I think, in my opinion. I think um, it's a perfectly fine game, but I think when you compared it to something like uh, like Super Stardust HD on right. PlayStation 3, I, I think it didn't quite have the kind of arcade chops or gameplay sophistication mm. stand out. It was, yeah, serviceable with nice graphics, perfectly fine game, but... Not not something I would be returning to now. Okay, that's fair. Uh, next up, then, 007 Legends. <laughs> Come on. Um, I only put this here because I... I re- first of all, I regret discovering this because it would have been a great gag Christmas gift for me to give this to Matthew and Wii U. That would be... I'm so sad I didn't think of that before we came up with this episode. So I just wanted to note that at some point this did happen. It does have a sticker on the front saying, featuring Skyfall. And you're like, that's so of its time. Amazing. Um, yeah, I could have got you that, Matthew. You could have got me Quantum of Solace on Wii. He would have been a great sort of like... <laughs> a great switch. Um, okay, next up then. Uh, Tekken Tag Tournament 2 Wii U Edition. Now, I flagged this because I know they made a big deal about Tekken in the marketing for the Wii U, um, like in the in the E3 conferences we discussed before, Matthew. So was it a big deal that Tekken had arrived on Wii U in some bespoke form? I, I can't really speak to it as, as like, you know, I'm not a fighting game guy at all. I It, it didn't create much of a buzz on the team. You know, it felt like Nintendo were close to... to Bandai Namco and so they'd put a lot of effort you know obviously they go on to work quite closely with them like they literally make Smash Brothers so um did, did people care about this Ash I can't remember I don't think so really I mean it's, again perfect perfectly good game um I think I think it, it kind of added it did its job at the time in terms of fleshing out the launch lineup and adding some kind of hardcore legitimacy to, to the platform mm. but um I think also at the same time, Tekken at that moment in time, for most gamers, I think it was starting to feel like a thing of the past, and it was only really the truly like hardcore fighting game fans that were clinging onto it. Um, I, yeah, I don't think it's that important in the Wii U story. Even the name puts you off, you know. Tekken Tech, you're like, oh, it's it's like a spin. Is spin it a off. spin-off? It's like a side thing. Like if you compare that to like the buzz around 
Street Fighter 4 on 3DS, mm-hmm. which really felt like special and exciting and people were really behind it, like just worlds apart. Okay, so right, that's that's fair enough then. So we've got two from 2012 as we move into 2013, the uh, Fallow um, for a while post-launch uh, year for the Wii U. So um, Marvel Avengers Battle for Earth. Now this is like a quite cheap looking 3D fighting game. That's a no, isn't it? But I, think I don't even remember this existing. <laughs> oh, I've completely forgotten it until this exact moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember anything about it. Okay, in the bin it goes. So, Monster Hunter 3 Ultimate. Um, I don't really know much about the Monster Hunter series until you get to like the sort of HD age. So, uh, Matthew, any thoughts on this one? I mean, I'm more interested on Ash's thoughts because every, once, every time Monster Hunter kind of happened during my time on Nintendo Mags, Nintendo were, I think, publishing it or distributing mm-hmm. it in Europe, and so we'd yeah. really get behind it, and we're like, we're determined to make this the thing it is in Japan, was always the kind of messaging. I, I like Monster Hunter 3 enough, I wasn't like, I've never been a huge, huge Monster Hunter guy, but I, I've definitely played later ones more than this, but I mean... It, do you remember that stuff coming from Nintendo Ash? That kind yeah, of... I I did the PR on this. Oh right, <laughs> uh, uh, in the in the like I don't know three or four months that I actually did it PR yeah. at Nintendo before I moved across, uh, and I, I can't remember exactly if the 3DS version and the Wii U version were coming out at the same time, but they were basically like variations of the same game, um, and I I remember. Uh, I'd never really got into Monster Hunter in the past, and I and I felt in order to do a good PR job, I really like this isn't a game you can like casually dip a toe in the water. Mm. You need to understand it. And I played so much of the 3DS version at my desk day after day. I actually got like a, a bit of a telling off <laughs> for it from from my boss. <laughs> um, they were like, yeah, maybe maybe you should like not play games all day um <laughs> uh, and i try you know i tried to explain like look this is the kind of game where you re- you really need to understand it um and I, and I think i did i did i did form an understanding i'm actually playing um monster hunter rise with a mate at the moment on game pass um uh, so i think you know job done for me on a personal level wh- whether right. it contributed much to the the uh the value of wii u at the time mm. uh, i th- i think i think the story of monster hunter ultimate on wii u and 3ds is, is more part of capcom's story of very slowly but surely yeah. um ingratiating monster monster hunter in the west and introducing it to people very like quite strategically i think step by step and yeah. right up until monster hunter world where it exploded um so it's an important part of that story yeah i don't think it's particularly important to wii it, u in hindsight no i like if anything i associate monster hunter with 3ds more yeah. you know from my time with it that was the version i played if i played any so yeah that's fair. Uh, yeah, still, ne- I never cracked a world myself. I, I've sort of um, got, I, I got it when everyone else had moved on from it. So uh, that's tough. Uh, one day for Monster Hunter, maybe there'll be a Monster Hunter episode in our like two years down the line or something, Matthew. Um, okay, Bit Trip presents Runner to Future Legend of Rhythm Alien. I don't know what this is, but I was reading um, <laughs> a list of games that were like significant digital games on right. Wii U, and this came up as one of them. Um, do you know what this is, Matthew? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a big bit trip guy, uh, much to Ash's annoyance. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the one where I famously gave Bit Trip Runner one like a really mean score because I was in a foul mood when I reviewed it, and um, I, be- I believe we had words about that at a press event once. Ash, <laughs> the most games journalistic I've ever heard. I mean, bloody hell, <laughs> um, Nintendo dweebs. Uh, Ash, thoughts on this one? 
So, yeah, I mean, just just quickly, the, the BitTrip series were, were these downloadable games on Wii that kind of fused, uh, like, a retro aesthetic with, like, hyper-casual experiences. Um, they were a bit of a mixed bag, but Runner was one that people really kind of latched onto, one of these, like, infinite Runner sort of games. It wasn't infinite. There were level ends to it um, with a bit of a... Uh, like you had to get into a rhythm as you played in order to be good at it, and it involved a lot of trial and error. I think it it had like one of those like instant restarts, so that you mm. you really if if you got your its hooks into you, you became quite addicted to like instantly restarting and perfecting your runs on this game. Mm. Um, the sequel is kind of just more of the same, really, yeah. and I, I liked it, um, but it wasn't you know it's not particularly special in hindsight no, i think no. did it have charles martinet in it he doing was the, like, yeah he was the, the narrator of the sequel yeah, yeah. So which is a uh, mark against it <laughs> <laughs> he comes up a lot of this podcast lately I must say. <laughs> uh okay so not going the hall of fame ash no okay <laughs> then we move on this is an interesting contender lego city undercover now this is obviously widely available on other platforms so we're kind of like uh, sort of a Traveller's Tales attempt at like an original, you know, non-licensed Lego game that is roughly similar to GTA, although you play the side <laughs> of law enforcement. Yeah. Um, I think this was considered a very special Wii U game. But Matthew, I'm curious, how much do you think its specialness is tied to the Wii U? How much of it is inherent in like how it played versus other platforms? I really liked it as a game. I think what ties it to Wii U was purely like the exclusivity of it at the time. I think the fact that this has been ported elsewhere. I mean, maybe I'm being unfair and have forgotten some amazing gamepad functionality. Like, I think it had the map on the gamepad and, and things like that. And But I, it was great. And, and it was, you know, in terms of like a big third-party exclusive that actually really landed. And especially given... It, like I think we had doubts about it because it wasn't tied to a license. You were just like, is the Lego universe sort of strong enough? And actually, that is one of its great strengths. It's free to be a, a, to joke about anything. It parodies like a whole genre of films rather than a specific one, and and does it really well. Like it's a legitimately funny game. I think I included it on my game of the year list for that year. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I I wouldn't say it's like like if we had nine games and we were struggling to fill a tenth spot. Like, I like it enough, but I don't know whether it's, like, an inherently Wii U thing to me. Mm. I remember this This felt quite important at the time when we were in that drought period and this was something kind of new and exclusive and interesting to look forward to that we could, mm. we could actually talk about uh, and say, you know, this is going to be a cool experience. I also remember how, like, into Lego we all got while we were promoting this and while we basically had lots of spare time because there were no other games coming. <laughs> so I think, we, I think we got a few kind of promo boxes of Lego in the office and, and ended up building those. And it spawned this, like, couple of years where every lunchtime we would go to the local toy shop and buy more Lego. Um, and after two years, my mate Jonathan had... On his desk, his work computer was like pushed to one side because his entire desk was a fully fledged Lego city with like ten buildings and cars and everything. <laughs> I'm not really sure why that was tolerated in hindsight um, because there, there was clearly a lot more time spent playing with Lego than there was uh, doing work in, in those days. Um, but I think just everyone knew there was like there was nothing else to do. So uh, what the hell? Um, what was going on at Nintendo UK, man? It's wild. <laughs> yeah, no one doing anything. I don't have any stories of like debauchery or anything like that. It's all it's just like sitting around making Lego all day or going for a fry up for two hours. It's funny because um, every time you tell an anecdote like this, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. They restructured uh, around the switch in retrospect. <laughs> that kind of makes sense. Actually. <laughs> 
uh, one of the rules from like uh, you know from Germany, like no more Lego cities on desks. Um, that's funny. Okay, I think this is a, a borderline no. Then I think it's like mm. a, a special game in the Wii U's lifespan, yeah. but not inherently tied to no. the Wii U as some of these other games might be. Okay, yeah. um, interesting. Um, game and Wario. This yielded a great Smash Bros. level, but is that a reason alone for it to be um, to it to make the cut, Matthew? I have a similar relationship to. I have to this to Nintendo Land in that we played it a lot in the office. It has a couple of great multiplayer modes. It has something which is a, it's a little bit like Monkey Target in Monkey Ball, where you're sort of flicking these little kind of characters onto a series of, sort of aerial targets above the sea. Memorable for two reasons: one, the little creatures in the in the fiction of WarioWare are called Fronks, and <laughs> the message "Release the Fronks" at the start of the round is like in, it, that is just funny. Um, that is a, a funny word to, to see a lot, and it was really vindictive because like they were like floating in water. So if you put too many fronks on one side, the whole thing would tilt, and all the fronks would like scream as they fell into the sea. Um, just a classic little bit of of magic there. Um, I, I think the problem with this one is is it's kind of the this is we use like WarioWare. And the actual WarioWare bit of it isn't isn't actually very good. There's like a mini game where you're playing WarioWare on the gamepad, and your mum comes into your bedroom, and you have to kind of like hide the the controls to to make it look like you're actually in bed. But I wanted a proper WarioWare. That isn't that isn't the form I wanted WarioWare to appear in as like a mini game in a wider mini game collection. It's certainly a gamepad showcase. This game, but is it is it just a worse Nintendo Land? I don't know. This is the only physical Wii U game I still own. Uh, I cannot bear <laughs> to part with it. Um, oh, okay. Well, there you, go. Uh, and, you know, partly that's because it offers all of these experiences that you can't get anywhere else. I do think I, I prefer it to Nintendo Land. I'm not going to say okay. it's better. I prefer it. Um, the Frank game that you mentioned, I really love. I also love there's um, kind of like a Pictionary style drawing game where it gives gives someone on the gamepad a category you have to draw, and then the other players see it on the TV and have to guess uh, uh, what you know what it is. Um, and I think there's a little bit of voting involved as well in terms of like what's best and what's funniest. If you're playing with the right group of people, that mm. is hilarious. Um, and you know my my circle of friends, if we get together where there's a Wii U set up that game gets played even today because... So if you get together in your loft. <laughs> yeah. um, I think Jonathan's still got his Wii U set okay. up. We, we usually play at his place. Um, and it, it really helps if you're playing with someone who's bad at drawing, of course. And yeah, uh, yeah you ju- you're just in stitches. So it, you, your mileage may vary depending on who you're playing yeah. with. But I, I think this is a pretty cool game. I had this um, highlighted in red as like, I wouldn't be upset if this ended up in there with Nintendo Land. Like, it's an inherently Wii U game. Like, it can't work anywhere else. Mm. Um, quite a good one where you have to pretend to be an NPC in a crowd of AIs to steal stuff while everyone's watching on the TV. A bit like Spy Party. That's good. Okay, so, Ash, you've got the tie-breaking vote on this one. Do you think it goes in? For, for now, I think so. Okay. Um, okay, so this one I've got in slightly the wrong order, I think. But it does roll out, I think, as a few digital games before there's a yeah. physical release in 2014. This should be should be slightly later in the 2013 list, because I think it starts in October that year. But Wii Sports Club... Um, Matthew, we talked about this before about how this kind of like reheat of uh, the kind of like Wii era casual games didn't seem to, you know, sort of uh, do much on Switch. Thoughts? The pitch of like, hey, you know that thing you got for free with your Wii, but well, now you're going to buy it installments on Wii U, and it hasn't doesn't look much better. And it right. used Motion Plus, but 
like the core of those games they did what they did i I just felt this was very unnecessary update and delivery of this bake it in or or just give it away for free or something like haven't you made enough money from wii sports (laughs) that's fair uh that sounds like a no ash yeah i mean just put wii sports resort in your wii u and and play that it's it's by far the superior game to be honest Mm. fair enough okay New Super Luigi U, and I think this is like an extended expansion, basically. Yeah. So, um, just for people who weren't there at the time, this was the year of Luigi, 2013. Um, <laughs> you I, weren't I, there at <laughs> the year of Luigi. It's like a, a big time culturally for our species, um, much memed. Um, yeah, this is a no, obviously, um, because we won't put the main game in. Um, any reflections on this one, Matthew or Ash? Similar thoughts to the other Wii U one, except this one was really fucking hard. That's all I remember. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they, these were these were like the hardcore, like oh, so you think you're good at this game, like level packs, really, um, and with a strict time limit. I think you got like ninety nine yeah. seconds or something like that. I think it's a much better game than New Super Mario Brothers U for those reasons. Yeah. But again, you can just get it on the Switch. Next up, then Pikmin Three. Now, this seemed like the game to me where I was like, oh, I can exactly see how the gamepad and this would work. Um, but how much is it's is what it does well tied to the Wii U, Matthew? Weirdly, the thing which really made this for me was was the pointer controls. Mm-hmm. You can use the gamepad as a map to like look around and send Pikmin off in different directions. It's good, for, definitely good for multitasking. But like my my fondest memory of this is the is the pointer controls. I guess the the question is is like are the are the Wii remote pointer controls technically better than the motion controls of the Switch update? Mm. But I remember thinking this was absolutely brilliant this is the game that made me like pikmin like i wasn't really a fan of this series and i thought this was just uh like one of the best things i played on wii u i you know i loved the look of it i thought the hd sort of like visuals and the textures and how shiny everything was i thought this was just a really glorious thing with with a decent amount of wii u functionality Oh yeah, it was definitely like the thing I looked at and thought, "Oh, this is what Nintendo can do with HD visuals, is it? This is amazing-looking yeah. water and you know environments and stuff." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Really what about exciting. you, Ash? Yeah, I, I I would just echo what you two have said. Like, you know, first time that I appreciated Nintendo in HD and that kind of like Pixar quality, like charm they can they can have, mm. um, and the uh, the curiously how the Wii motion controls made it a much more viable game than anything the gamepad could bring so yeah even though it was a Wii U exclusive at the time does that make it a definitive Wii U game when it's so tied to the Wii I don't really I don't know how I feel about that equally yeah. I've never played the Switch version so I don't know how well it translated it may be that the Wii U version is still uh, the definitive version it's mm. it's a it's a really cool game again if we were stretched for 10 i'd be very happy to have it on there mm. i'm gonna pop a maybe next to that one yeah okay angry birds trilogy what a weird <laughs> moment this was um i think they i remember being on games tm at the time and they seemed to make a weirdly big deal about the fact that angry birds a phone game that everyone had played already was coming to <laughs> wii u thoughts matthew oh no this isn't going in like it's, it's fucking angry birds isn't it? <laughs> ash yeah let's let's move on <laughs> okay, next up, the wonderful 101. This is a really interesting case. Obviously, this is now widely available everywhere else, yeah. but certainly there's a, a big a big amount of um, Wii U gamepad uh, screen functionality yeah. here that's inherent to the experience, arguably. Thoughts, Matthew? I'd say this is an absolute Hall of Fame essential. Mm. Um, the best version of it... Maybe not performance-wise, but it's not like the later ports are like shining on that front either. The scenes that 
are built around something going on on the TV and you controlling the Wonderful 101 in like an interior world on the gamepad. While there's not as many of them as you maybe remember there being, like they are brilliant. You know, the idea of steering a spaceship that's driving around on the TV screen by kind of walking over controls in the spaceship interior on the gamepad. A real wow moment. Just so big and flashy. I mean, everyone knows my thoughts on this game more widely from the Platinum episode. I think this is like just uh, you know Camia doing what he does best so yeah big big fan yeah I tend to agree I think I think this is this is the kind of game that Wii U was made for to be honest um I find it a very difficult game to play because you're trying to get your head around that kind of platinum like hardcore combo gaming at the same time as working with completely unique controls but at the same time that makes it a really rewarding game because as, as you skill up you you reap the rewards of that and you get the satisfaction. Oh. I think it's a, a great game. Okay, awesome. We have our fourth Hall of Famer so far. Uh, Rayman Legends, a really interesting one where I felt like it was slightly compromised on other platforms by not yeah. having the Wii U experience. Should this go in, Matthew? This is a big yes from me. As, as a platforming game, I, I loved what they did with this kind of rebooted 2D Rayman. This one was way more imaginative and colourful and varied than Rayman origins but the wii u gamepad use and the idea that there was this sort of second collaborative player who could play as this kind of uh, little goblin called murphy or little fairy thing called murphy and like interact with the level and kind of hold obstacles back or like carve out routes through cake sponge that you then walk through the way they automated that and made that work on every other platform outside of wii u was sort of fucked Mm. um like this is this is where that game should live and it's where it's at its best and it's yeah i I love this game again solid third party support from ubisoft on this one ash were you a fan of this game yeah big fan of this game i thought it was great i agree that it definitely loses something in all of its various ports uh i also remember the frustration of how many times it was delayed um yeah uh, you know, not just as a fan waiting for it, but as a Nintendo employee wanting something to shout right. out. It was like, oh, for God's sake, please release this game. Um, I can't not, I can't really add much more, except um, I really love to remember the kind of musical rhythm uh, stages yeah. where they would do parody songs. They did, I think there's one like based on like uh, Black Betty by Ram Jam. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of level, like, for me, I would load up the game just to play that stage. Uh, yeah, because it's just just so much fun, really inventive. Well, in it goes then. Uh, excellent. Uh, so, The Legend of Zelda: The Wind Waker HD not released on Switch as of yet. Ooh. Rumored many times. Probably will be at some point. Uh, probably in the dying days of the Switch, I would imagine. Now, excuse me, as I have a shit house take, but I played this again this morning, and to my eye, the slightly overbearing lighting in this makes it. A, <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> makes it a little less <laughs> handsome than the GameCube version. To my eye. It looked very, very crisp. Still looks nice. I think the GameCube version has a slight edge in its original sort of visual style. What do you think, Matthew? Am I being a dickhead with that kind of take? It's an acceptable take. It's not one I'd like agree with. Um, okay. I, I thought this was quite kind of lush. How it like filled the filled the screen. I think the colours are really rich. It definitely has a different look. You're right. Like this sort of like very like bloomy kind of lighting. Mm. But it was a look of its own. I thought it f- it felt suitably like HD. When they announced this and we saw it in the trailers, it was such a wow moment and really felt like the kind of you know. The, the the life paddles being applied to our chests for a couple of months. 
prints on the magazines. <laughs> we were like, this is something we can really get behind. Use the, the Wii U yeah. gamepad in, in some interesting ways, using it for the inventory. There's a lot of subtle streamlining in this game. Like, if you actually play it, you know, put the two side by side. Tiny little things like speeding up certain animations that you're going to be doing a lot, like firing the hook shot. It all adds up into a quicker experience. The fact that it has that... F- uh, fast sail that you can use mm. to kind of speed up motion. It, sh- it shrinks the Triforce fetch quest. Like, there is some really good massaging of the original game to kind of really make it shine. Of course, yeah. the defunct Tingle Bottles as well. <laughs> well, it's not been on Switch, you know, for such a long time now that it does feel like inexorably tied to the to the Wii yeah. U in a, in a specific way. So I think it probably needs to go in. Um, but on the basis that it is so shiny and, you know, uh, you know, and, and streamlined, but... I don't think everyone is 100% on board with it being, like, better looking per se. It, it looks different. Yeah, um, but still, you know, if you want to play a modern version of it, absolutely no argument that it's um, it's definitive. Yeah, I think this is the definitive version of one of the best Zelda games ever made, so I've got no problem with it being in. Uh, on a personal level, I'll also say this came along just when I needed it in life. Um, <laughs> I, I found myself between houses uh, when, when this game came out because we... we bought a house and given notice on our flat and we, we didn't really work out and we ended up temporarily living uh in an apartment above a proctologist's right. uh, practice uh with an ensuite bathroom that smelled so bad i was convinced and i mean convinced that there was a dead body under the floorboards wow uh, so this was a really dark time in my life um, yeah. Brightened up considerably, brightened up by this really beautiful remake of a beautiful game. Um, so, yeah, on a personal level, it's um, you know saved me from depression. I reckon. Did Did you not feel jealous when Link came into property in this game? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's say yes. I mean, I'm, how can you not be jealous of Link? What What a life he's got drinking yeah. grandma's soup. I just love the contrast of a dead man is literally below my feet and <laughs> just those two things contrasting amazing okay it goes in that's six games um well done 2013 it, you know really really going well so far sonic lost world uh i played this um again sonic moves too fast for it to for him to even function in a mario galaxy like um sort of like spherical um approach to level design absolute pure chaos it's a no from me dog matthew <laughs> Uh, it's like the only 3D Sonic I don't mind. Oh, because the music. Oh, yeah, because as established. Because it is. It's, yeah, Sonic rips off Mario Galaxy. Obviously, no way near as good. I definitely overscored this in O&M. I just, oh, the music is so good. And there is a level <laughs> set on Giant Fruit. That's two big ticks from me. Yeah, I mean, it has to be pretty potent to get me over the hurdle of the whole Sonic of it all. So, uh, yeah. Um, it's sort of like it's on other platforms now uh, as well. Uh, I don't think it's. Yeah, any, I mean, yeah. it's don't put it in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely <laughs> not. But um, I'll probably put a bit of its music in this episode somewhere. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I can live outside in a tent, sort of thing. Um, Ash, thoughts on this? I know you're a big Sonic guy. You probably expect me to love this, and no, I don't actually. Be <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Lo- I don't love this. I was really looking forward to it. I liked the idea of being inspired by Mario Galaxy, but I f- it felt a bit flat to me. Had all the a lot of the classic problems that 3D Sonic games have. Um, yeah, I'm, I was disappointed. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, moving on then. Deus Ex Human Revolution Director's Cut. Another slightly <sighs> odd sort of like port from a 360 or PS3 game. But they did make an effort, I believe, to integrate this, the controls, quite 
quite yeah. well. Um, and they did, you know, they they also changed the game um, to add some like non-lethal boss options. Um, you know, addressing a criticism from the base game, they would later roll that out to other versions. But for yeah. a time, I think that was exclusive to Wii U. And I think as the ports go, Matthew, this is probably up there, right? What do you think? It's it's probably up there. Also, like a game which can be probably enjoyed in isolation. You don't have to have played any other Deus Ex. Relatively self-contained. I'm sort of umming and ahhing about this one. It didn't make much of a splash. We got really excited about it. I think we did like one of the earliest kind of features about sort of like revealing the game and it definitely felt a bit more exciting in the short period where it was like a Wii U exclusive because you thought, oh wow, not just the functionality of the console but like the tweaks that they've made to like you could do like non-lethal takedowns of the bosses and things like that. You know, they've really gone in and addressed some of the bigger problems and if for some reason those had been locked to Wii U it would have been an amazing coup and I can understand why they didn't do that. Mm. Um, but it, it seemed it seems less exciting to me now that you can do this on all platforms of it. For my sins, I've never played this game on any platform, so I, c- I can't really have oh. an informed opinion. Um, but I hear it's a wonderful game, and I, th- I think it's a real blind spot in my history. Um, but pro- probably not a definitive Wii U game, I, w- mm. I would imagine. Yeah, I guess Muscled Out is probably you know a definitive PC game uh, mm. of, of this time, just given its heritage. Okay, next up, Wii Party U. Feels like a no to me. Feels like Nintendo Land has ticked this box for us. Uh, uh, thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, it's not Mario Party, which is like a plus, but um, no, no, not not for me. Ash? I, I worked on this game and I have no memory of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Good. it has been muscled out officially. Angry Birds Star Wars, obviously a no. Um, again, wanted to note that Angry Birds are making inroads onto Wii U at this time. Um, yeah. Tough days. Mario and Sonic at the 2014 Winter Olympic Games. I've never liked this series. Not really a fan. Thoughts, Matthew? No, they, it's always sucked. And it's we had some we had some rough magazine times with this because it, it was tied up with so many like license holders, Mario, Sonic, and the Olympic Games. <laughs> there were so many ways that you could get fucked trying to cover this game um, <laughs> that it, it, it leaves a particularly bitter taste. I Neil said on that episode a few weeks ago. <laughs> that was amazing. Where the cover got pulled and they needed to stick a giant Dragon Quest face on the cover <laughs> instead uh, uh, after deadline. And you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's Mario and Sonic at the Winter Olympics. <laughs> yeah, that would make me deeply resent the Olympics as a concept if that happened to me. Um, Ash, I'm guessing you agree with this? Yeah, similar frustrations. I think I was doing social media content for this game when it was coming out and, and the hurdles you had to jump through. No, that's that's the Summer Olympics. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, it, in many cases, it was just easier not to um, bother covering it, which uh, I'm sure was uh, great for the marketing. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, the first one on the Wii had a little bit of value because it, it kind of it had some good uses of the Wii remote and nunchuck, but I, I don't think it really translated in the same way to Wii U and Wii U gamepad doesn't have the same physicality as a, a Wii mm. remote which is you kind of need for an Olympics game mm. maybe it did use the Wii remote for some events I cannot remember it, it didn't leave an impression okay it doesn't get in moving on Super Mario 3D World, one of the most significant uh, releases on Wii U throughout its lifespan, the only original 3D Mario game that came to this platform, a source of many great memories for me. Um, this is like probably the, my favourite game I played on the platform, eh, other than Breath of the Wild maybe, but is it that tied to Wii U that it couldn't be enjoyed elsewhere? I don't think it is, Matthew. I know it has a few sort of touchscreen kind of elements, so maybe yeah. something involving 
blowing or something like that, or there's some other thing there's that it does. There's definitely like touchscreen platforms that you can steer around. Um, for, for me, that that what makes it very hard to detach from Switch now is the Bowser's Fury add-on, which I just think is so juicy. Yeah. The idea that the definitive version of this on is on Switch seems seems uh, quite weak to me. Yeah, no, that, okay. That Wii U, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I I loved it. I think it was a great game. But again, I don't think it's lost too much in the translation. In fact, it has gained, as you point out. Um, what do you think, Ash? I think it's an awesome game, and I, I think they they really successfully married the appeal of a 3D Mario game with the 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 kind of accessible multiplayer of the new Super Mario Brothers games. Mm. Um, really, kind of a design triumph in that respect. And I think Cat Mario is a design for the ages. There's a reason he's you know back in like the Mario movie, for example. Great design, but it translates beautifully on the Switch. And so there's not that much reason to return to it on Wii U, but it. It is, you know, if you were doing a top 10, these are the greatest Wii U games. Yes, it's it's on that list. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful. And, like, such nice geometry in this game, too, is, again, that translating 2D to 3D thing. Just lovely, lovely Mm. level design. Okay. Um, Doesn't get in, but very, very good game. Scribblenauts Unlimited. Was never much of a Scribblenauts person myself, Uh, Matthew? Scribblenauts was, like, wild the first time out on DS, and then you kind of played it for five hours and got bored of the idea. Probably, I don't think it stopped me from giving it, like, fucking 90 or something stupid in, in, <laughs> in Gamer. Um, but um, by the time this... I mean, Scribblenauts is just... No thanks. Well, the most joy you will ever have with Scribblenauts is in that first half an hour, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, as you figure out its limitations and its strengths. All I remember about, th- about this is that it got insanely delayed by about a year even though it was finished and we had physical copies in the office and I wish I could remember the reason uh, why that happened. It was it was some some sort of error that couldn't even be like, um, didn't feel comfortable patching out. Uh, there's probably a juicy story there that I'm robbing everyone of, but uh, maybe it's for <laughs> the best. Uh, yeah, game itself, like Scribble Noughts was always one of those ideas that I think was very interesting on paper is fun to mess around with for a couple mm. of hours and then you like oh, just go play a different game okay not in then let's move on so we fit you that's a no isn't it <laughs> for this crowd <laughs> yeah. it didn't work <laughs> <laughs> okay and I, I, I include myself in that <laughs> <laughs> okay um that's uh, a no let's move on nez remix this just came up recently matthew um does yeah. this does this warrant a place Cause there are two of these games on wii u right yeah, I mean, if 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 there be like a, a a scrappy way of kind of putting them in together, the fact that this doesn't exist outside of Wii U is is quite a point of confusion to me because there's nothing tying it to Wii U. You know, it's like a you know a load of button inputs playing like mini games carved out of classic retro Nintendo it's NES on, games. It's on 3DS, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, actually, yeah, I completely forgot about that. Well, that yeah, that makes it much, much um, a weaker inclusion. But the point stands that I am annoyed that this isn't a series they continued with because I was super into the whole NES remix thing. Mm. This is like the 3DS version of these combined is definitely something I'm going to hoover up before that cl- shop closes. Um, it's on my list. So, is that a no for you, from you, Matthew? Yeah, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Doctor Luigi. I think it's a no, but the name just made me laugh oh, so much. I don't. I don't know how you feel about Doctor Mario Ash, but on Endgamer, we always hated that guy. <laughs> uh, I mean, gr- great music. But that's basically that's what I have it. to say. <laughs> He's a doctor who just chucks pills down your throat. There's something just very sinister about his whole deal. It's very satirical about the U.S. pharmaceutical industry, Matthew. It's not. Let's move on. Uh, 2014. <laughs> 
Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, uh, oh. you know, but boasting a time trial mode as uh, uh, previously discussed. Almost, almost got me fired. So <laughs> it's a, it's a no from me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that ties this uh, to Wii U in particular, Matthew? Because obviously this is on Switch as well. No, play it on Switch. I don't remember this having a single interesting Wii U feature, but. Yeah. Like, I don't think on this game much, because for obvious reasons. Yeah. Ash, how about you? Do you have more affection for this game? Yeah, I, well, I have a hot take that this is the only truly good Donkey Kong Country Oof. game. Uh, yeah, that's what we like to hear on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, think um, I'm, I might get savaged by uh, certain listeners for saying that. Um, <laughs> but I, I, tr- I truly do believe it. It's the, it's the only one. I've, I've played all of them. It's the only one that I legitimately love. I think it is a wonderfully, wonderfully designed and presented game um but equally so on switch it loses nothing by going to switch um i will say it's part part of that era of wii u where it did feel like nintendo were purposefully dropping the wii u functionality and just making games that could easily be ported to other systems uh Mm. i think mario kart 8 is is part of that category as well and i Mm. and i wonder if um I, i always i can only speculate but i wonder if they didn't really see the economical value in in pushing the Wii U features anymore, or even if they knew we need to start building games that will be portable to the next platform. Um, yeah. if, if at the time it felt strange um, as an employee to be thinking, "Hang on a minute, like why why are you not giving us games that can sell the unique potential of the Wii U? They're just they're just good games." Oh. Uh, how hard it is with just you know games that are merely good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. We have kind of entered the second half of the lifespan here, almost. So, uh, yeah, that would not surprise me if this marks that turning point. Okay, this isn't working. Let's just you know plan ahead. Um, okay, that's a no, but not to say it's not a great game. I know a lot of people love this this one, um, side-scrolling uh, Donkey Kong game from Retro Studios. So next up, Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures feels like a no, Matthew. <laughs> No, just a rot- rotten 3D platformer, isn't it? Yeah, get get rid. Okay, NES Remix, no as established, um, doesn't mean it's not good. Um, Mario Kart 8, I think this is now, for better or worse, a definitive Switch game. Um, obviously has the DLC bundled in. No reason to really go back to this one. Thoughts, Matthew? A masterpiece, I would mm. say, of, of Mario Kart. It is, the, it is the galaxy of Mario Kart, but it is... Um... Yeah, it's a Switch game, and congrats on the fucking, whatever it is, 50 million sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ash, again, for you, same I, I, deal. I think it's the best Wii U game collectively in the office. You know, there was a little clock on the Wii U. We put well over a 1,000 hours uh, into <laughs> this. It just uh, a, a real kind of, like, after work and lunch break um, mm. uh, pastime that, you know, no, nothing else got a look in uh for the for the rest of the Wii U lifespan, um, but but yeah, like it's, it's massively overshadowed by the Switch version. Yeah, I just never had that experience with this, and then obviously Switch is like, I'll just attach these controllers, prop it up, and I'm in a coffee shop, and we'll just play two player Mario Kart, and it's yeah, it's just night and day really from my experience of Wii U, which felt very solitary. Um, so yeah, it's nice someone was having a local co op experience. In fact, I'm <laughs> I, talking. We to were the really enjoying it until they shut down the mag. <laughs> that yeah, that will uh, that will do it. So uh, yeah, okay. Obviously, yeah, classic, but not quite in the Hall of Fame for obvious reasons. Pushmo World, another one I got from a list of notable digital games. Matthew, I associate this series more with 3DS. This is the puzzle game where you pull blocks sort of in and out of the foreground as mm-hmm. a as a little guy called Mallow. I think it was his name. Um, obviously, on 3DS, 
that's a really striking effect because you can sort of see the different depths of the different levels of blocks. And that isn't to say it's not a fine platformer on Wii U, but the true kind of core of this game lives lives in 3D. Okay. Ash, you on board with that? Yeah, this is a 3DS series, really. Okay. Hyrule Warriors. So, yeah, the first time that Nintendo had done their version of the the you know Musou format uh, basically um, quite drab looking game I think compared to Age of Calamity I don't know if this is necessarily considered a classic but you know certainly a good bit of fan service and probably mm. quite notable to you Matthew on O&M at the time they did something like this sort of like it was trying to work out like what what a Nintendo doing or like what what's the direction here because you know you've got this console which is kind of faltering and this seemed like a very very hardcore decision in hindsight i don't know if it you know i think they actually have made quite a success of their various warriors tie-ins so mm. it, it like pushing in that direction doesn't seem as mad now i think you're right about it lacking the clear visual hook of the sequel you know it's based on a more sort of generic idea of zelda it's not like a specific zelda universe it's kind mm. of bringing stuff together but i didn't have a huge problem with that i just think if you know you can play this in other versions okay yeah it's on 3ds and switch this one ash same deal yeah i think i think it's a great celebration of the zelda history at that point uh i put 85 hours into this game oh. i actually really loved it um and, the, yeah. and, it, and it gives you a lot to do it's a very generous game mm. Um. Yeah. It's, yeah. You can you can play it elsewhere. Okay. Fair enough. Um. Yeah. It did seem like a big deal to me at the time as someone on the outside looking in. Um. Because it's just got so many references to other Zelda games pulled into it. Okay. Bayonetta two. Uh. Again. This is on Switch and it's really nice on Switch. And having played it with the OLED screen, oh, I don't yeah. think I could ever go back to that blurry ass um <laughs> playing on gamepad version. Thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. The definitive version of this is, is Switch OLED. Pleased it was there, though. I mean, it, it kind of... I don't feel we got to celebrate it properly because it's arrived just as the mag was kind of properly getting shut down. So, yeah, um, like, I don't even remember signing these last pages out, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, say, you know, they, they salvaged this series from Oblivion, basically. Sega yeah. just decided not to move forward with it. So, you know, they Nintendo became the custodians of Bayonetta, and that was a great, a great move by them. Uh, thoughts on this one, Ash? I wonder, again, alternative universe stuff, I wonder if Wii U had been a big success out of the gate, would Nintendo have felt like they needed to salvage Bayonetta from from Oblivion, possibly not. So I I think you know we we you that you know there's a nice silver lining there that Bayonetta came back and has, has endured since. Um, mm. Great game, just as great on the Switch. I like the idea that that the Wii U is struggling and it's like you know what will save it Bayonetta. <laughs> yeah, a sequel to a game that sold one million copies on other platforms. <laughs> they, they also salvaged Devil's Third uh, at the same time, but uh, that that ain't going on the Hall of Fame. No, I will get to that. So um, next up, um, the Uncharted of Nintendo, Sonic oh. Boom. Rise of <laughs> uh, move over, Uncharted. It's fucking Sonic Boom, Rise of Lyric. Yeah. Uh, so that's a no then, Matthew. Oh, um, that was, it was such dog shit. This is the weird Knuckles is like buff one, isn't it? I think that happened in this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, an, it's a no. Okay, um, Ash, unless you have any residual Sonic love for this one. No, no. no <laughs> <laughs> Super Smash Bros. for Wii, that's an obvious no to me, um, because why would you play this over this? The Switch one in particular is like a towering achievement compared to this one, I think. This is just like a half measure, and if you didn't have much of a local sort of like, you know, multiplayer scene, this is basically a pointless purchase, and I consider it that way in retrospect. Thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I'm on board with that. 
<laughs> Ash. Yeah, the Switch version is literally the ultimate version of this game. So, yeah, that's it. Looked real nice, of course, but uh, yep, obviously all that good work would uh, pay off on Switch, as is the case with so many of these. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. This is your favorite Wii U game, isn't it, Matthew? No, <laughs> I, it's it's fine. It's absolutely fine. It's like a triumph of like cuteness and animation. It's probably more of like a like I'd I'd, cla- I'd put Captain Toad in more with like Luigi's Mansion, where mm. it's like a big character play rather than a necessarily like awesome game underneath it all. But it's so like richly drawn and lovingly made that it kind of wins you over. But it's like uh, it depends if are you a you know if Nintendo cute is like enough for you, then by all means. Yeah. But I I just think it's just, I think it's really throwaway as a, as a puzzle platform. It just doesn't. It, you know, you just race through it and you're like, oh, was that it? A bit like Hyrule Warriors. This is put onto so many different platforms. I don't think it's necessarily tied to Wii U in the same way as some of these games. Like, I've got it on 3DS. So, uh, yeah, and obviously it's on Switch too. So, sounds like a no to me. Okay, 2015. Uh, firmly in the second half here. Um, Mario Party 10. No, Matthew? No. <laughs> no, Ash? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> okay, no love for Mario Party here. This is an interesting one. Affordable Space Adventures. A 2D space... Uh, space exploration game where you played a little spaceship where its kind of control panel was on the gamepad and so you were constantly adjusting and tinkering with the uh, qualities of the ship on the gamepad to survive the experiences that you were playing on the tv screen so like if there was an enemy that reacted to like loud noises you could switch to like the electric engine instead of the gas engine so that you would glide past it and you could could you could sort of direct power around different parts of the ship and so 2d action adventure where you were also kind of like puzzling out the kind of right sort of specifications for your spaceship on the gamepad which made it one of the only like true kind of like tv gamepad interaction single player games which is probably why it should, well, it should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I was hoping you go to bat for this. Ash, did you have much experience with this one? Played this at the time. I remember how I felt about it more than I remember the, the kind of mechanical experience of playing it. But right. I, I, I remember feeling, I, you know, I wish there were more download games that took advantage of the Wii U in the, in the way this does. Um, this this is one of those games. If I was ever to drag the Wii U out of the loft, I'd be loading this up and and reminding myself all about it. I'm, I'm very happy for it to be in the list. Okay, great. So for the first time in about I think like a year and a half, we've got a, a Hall of Fame. Yeah, here, and we so have skipped good. over like amazing games. Admit, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but again, it's like that. We are what's, What is evident, I think, from that curve is like we're running out of games that make take advantage of the specific platform that it's on. Um, yeah. That's probably yeah. what's notable. Well, there's a, there's a big one coming. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Kirby and the Rainbow Paintbrush. Matthew, as the man who absolutely submerged himself in Kirby last year, where did this fall for you? I, I reviewed this at Games Master. I wasn't a fan. I, I thought it was like a rougher version of Power Paintbrush on the DS. I really didn't like the plasticine art style of it i thought nintendo had gone like super into this handcrafted thing with like kirby's epic yarn and then woolly yoshi and then plasticine kirby and this was the one that just didn't land it just looked like big ugly blocks of clay mechanically i found it very very frustrating compared to the ds version it's not in my hall of fame okay well 
you know, there's not enough like conviction there for it to go in the Hall of Fame, <laughs> so let's move on. Uh, Mario versus Donkey Kong, Tipping Stars. I think it's another Digi game. Um, I don't know much about this one, Matthew. Do you? Yeah, Mar- March of the Minis is is not a Nintendo series I have much fondness for, which is really annoying because they made fucking millions of these things. <laughs> like all the Nintendo franchises you love that they don't make more of. For some reason, this like there's a version on I think like DS, DSiWare, 3DS, Wii U, maybe several on 3DS. It's a bit Lemmingsy, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's actually a lot like Krusty's Funhouse if you ever played that, <laughs> where you kind of program um, little, you put down like little obstacles and stuff to steer these little mechanical Mario's. Never ever worked for me. This just doesn't, doesn't do it. I kind of resent the series to be honest. Right. Uh, <laughs> and the the reason is it kind of arguably evolved out of the Game Boy game, the Donkey Kong 94, which is is uh, like an all-time uh, platform game. You, you know, think, um, think Donkey Kong, but with Mario 64 controls on the Game Boy somehow, if, if, if that makes any sense at all. Um, uh, but then to see the series evolve beyond that, and they kept, you know, with every Mario versus Donkey Kong, they would almost try to reinvent it every single time. Mm make it into a different sort of puzzle platformer and I felt like it just it lost a bit more of its DNA every single time to to the point where it became borderline irrelevant to me so it's a no okay it's a no this is a really interesting one um okay so absolute bolt from the blue massive success that rose above the fact that its hardware was performing badly to genuinely find an audience and become a breakout hit splatoon and not available in exactly the same form on other formats there's an argument for this going in matthew what do you think you know obviously it's it's the the, the core kind of paint you swim in the paint you kill with the paint um idea that that is in all splatoons mechanically there is something about having the map on the separate gamepad screen which i think is superior Mm -hmm. to bringing up a map in two and three Mm. people may disagree with that like in my head this was 100 percent made for wii u and they carried it on because it was massive so does that earn it a place in the Wii U Hall of Fame? I think so. Ash, what do you think? I, I'm tempted to say it it, it does. I think it, um, it, it, it was a game specifically made with the strengths of Wii U in mind. Uh, anecdotally, I remember like it, this had a kind of mythological status at Nintendo UK because you would hear about it long before you'd ever seen it. Mm, um, right. So it, it, you know, people, you'd go into a meeting room and someone would be like, or when Miyamoto's paintball game comes along, even though it wasn't a Miyamoto game at all, that's that's how it was referred to. They'd be like, right. you know, when when his paintball game comes, everything's going to change. Like that's we've never seen anything like that. Uh, and you know, I don't think it really changed the fortunes of of the Wii U, but it it did launch a a phenomenal new IP for Nintendo, which doesn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it, I think it's right at home on Wii U. Um, and I agree with Matthew that the um, having the map on the gamepad um, because the it is essential because um, this this is a game about dominating a a map about you know pe- painting the, the mm. floor as much as you can. So being able to see that at all times. Um, is a really crucial part of the game design. I and also I played this to death on Wii U. Um, I've never played Splatoon three, and I played Splatoon two for a couple of games. Um, that says something, possibly more about me than the games. Um, but it's always a Wii U game to me. 
I think the original game almost does everything they want to do with it. Like they, yeah. they've not moved it. There's never a leap in two or three. It's like yeah. it's like maybe more nuanced, but it is just more Splatoon one. I think that this was just. I, I think it's like also there's maybe a finite amount of joy you can get out of the idea. Like that's how I personally feel about it a <laughs> right. little bit. And so, and I felt like I got a lot of that from this. It was also a really slick Nintendo Online experience. That's what I thought about it. It was like mm-hmm. it was really good actually, like throwing you into a game and the overall experience. And like it's like it's a good multiplayer hang in contrast mm. to like some quite bad multiplayer hangs on other platforms. So yeah, I think it should go in. So that's our eighth entry um, so far. Okay, Art Academy Atelier. Uh, it's a no, right, Matthew? I mean, it's just a draw- drawing thing. Makes sense on the gamepad, but yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. Ash, you on board with that? That's a hell of a no. Okay, <laughs> Yoshi's Woolly World. This is also on Switch, right, Matthew? There's a port of it on 3DS and there's a sequel on Switch. That's right. I, it, this wasn't as good as Kirby's Epic Yarn. Yoshi's, the Yoshi games have all been a bit ropey since Yoshi's Island. I don't think that's the spiciest take. I don't think they've ever really nailed it. Maybe he was like a one-time only kind of hero. Who knows? <laughs> Ash. More, more notable for the awesome Yan Yoshi Amiibos that they released alongside <laughs> oh, yeah. it. yeah. Yeah, they were uh, cool. Which uh, I had one and my dog ate it, and I'll, I'll, I'll never forgive her for that. Uh, so got whenever, the... is that whenever you want to use Yan Yoshi in Smash Brothers, you have to rub your dog against the N- NFC reader. <laughs> <laughs> rubber, rubber nose in it. Oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, Don't get the dog amiibo. So, so for that reason alone, it's a no. Okay, great. Uh, Devil's third. Oh boy. Um, so what? It's a third-person game with first-person multiplayer. Is that right, Matthew? Yeah, made by Mister Ninja Gaiden mm. Itagaki. Um, um, originally, an uh, a game for it was being published by THQ for like 360 and PS3 and when THQ went down it didn't have a home and ends up weirdly at Nintendo because Iwata's like yeah this is what we need Um, very an odd odd shout a notoriously troubled path to release I mean famously like Nintendo of America basically like want nothing to do with it even though it's a Nintendo published game people petitioned them to release it it felt incredibly begrudging this was the one which (laughs) Like according to the anecdotes, GameStop purchased 420 copies to sell across the country. Um, <laughs> they were so like, "Fuck this game." <laughs> um, so it's a it's a it's an oddity, but it also terrible. Yeah. So Ash, what was the deal? What was your feeling with this internally at Nintendo UK? Because I think someone tweeted me saying that there was like such a surplus of copies of this left <laughs> in the UK Nintendo store that they were just like firing them out. Basically, what was the deal there? Yeah, uh, yeah, that that sounds about right to me. I I, I remember <laughs> that the marketing manager on this um, put a lot of effort into it. Actually, I, 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 but I think I think they gave it to um, uh, I think they gave it to an intern, either an intern or someone who had been an intern and right. uh, had been employed as a full time member of staff. So. Um, I think for him it was like, oh, this is my big chance to uh, to market a game and and really put a lot of effort into it. But a few of us played it, and it like it was almost unbelievable that Nintendo would put their name to a game that bad. <laughs> uh, oh. it, it's ba- baffling. There must like somebody like Itagaki must know so they must be mates with someone at Nintendo for this to have happened, um, or <laughs> Nintendo were just so desperate for something they could sign cheaply and, and get released like I, I do not know i'd almost be tempted to put it in as like i don't know just a strange kind of artifact tied to the wii u um but 
it's not a good enough game to be. I think, I think if game. we if we were to put this in while also <laughs> casually d- dismissing for legitimate reasons Mario <laughs> 3D World and Mario Kart 8, uh, that that's a, a crime of taste. Definitely, People would burn down the Hall of Fame. It's a classic act of uh, yeah podcast shit houseery <laughs> that uh, would not yeah. be forgiven by the by sensible people. So let's move on. Um, Super Mario Maker was this any better on Wii U, Matthew, than it would be on other formats? I actually don't have a vast amount of experience with Super Mario Maker, so let's pass to Ash. Yeah, I bought this, but never played it. Uh, Ash, the, I, I made a little Hall of Fame list of my own just before doing this podcast, and Mario Maker was at, at number one. Um, wow, okay. I, I, I think it, it again. It's it's you know it's a perfect partnership with the Wii U hardware because of the gamepad. Uh, it's in my opinion, it is. It definitely loses something when they made the sequel on Switch. They made, you know, they made the best of the situation that they could, but nothing can compete with assembling those levels, you know, on your gamepad, very kind of close and intimately. You know, sit, you don't even need the TV on really. You can just sit on the couch, uh, drag drag items uh, and assets around to design your level, and then pass it to somebody else to play. You know, at the time working on it, it felt like a revolution like it it felt like something we should be really shouting about because it it wasn't something other platforms could do there were there had been other kind of like design your own game makers but you compare in my opinion compare super mario maker to like little big planet they are worlds apart from each other because super mario maker had the backbone of mario platform games so it was already before you've even made a level, it's already at a massive advantage compared to mm. any other game making software. Um, mm. And and the, and the way that game making software was designed by Nintendo, like the you know a bit like Mario Paint on the SNES, like interacting with the level designer itself sometimes felt as much of a game as playing the right. end results. Um, so tr- you know, tremendous game. I think the gamepad uh, does make the Wii U version definitive. Um, it sadly lost something because Miiverse is no longer there. I'm not sure you can even access levels online anymore, which might be a big tick against it or cross against it. Um, but also, it had the uh, amiibo functionality um, where you you could add in, you could tap an amiibo and get a an eight bit sprite based on that uh, amiibo. Um, was something I, do, I don't think the sequel does that. Um, right. uh, uh, and that you know that inspired cr- creators to like design their own Zelda levels, for example. Um, also behind the, <laughs> I've got a really good behind the scenes story on this. Uh, there were like promo characters that were that were added. Um, we worked with um, Ardman to get Shaun the Sheep in there as a kind of downloadable character, which is really cool. Um, right. I think there was a Mercedes car you could play as. Uh, <laughs> jump around as a car. We didn't uh, do that Sean one. the sheep and a car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I spent a, a not inconsiderable amount of time trying to get ukulele in there. But I do remember sitting in an office with one of the marketing managers and, and he said, look, why don't you, you know, keep trying, try and get something signed off, but, you know, let's let's go a bit more mainstream, right? Like, Sean the Sheep was a good idea. Uh, I think we should try and get the Queen in the game. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. <laughs> wow. But what if the Queen dies? <laughs> Will it not be inappropriate? <laughs> Yeah. Gets like a hit with hammers, you know what I mean? Like it's not it's not ideal, is oh, it? Oh you can't fire a bullet bill into the fucking queen. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well that's a great story, Ash, so uh, yeah, appreciate it. I think that 
there's an argument like, i mean splatoon it's not like anyone's going into splatoon now to play it multiplayer i think there's a, an element here of like capturing what the wii u did well that makes mm-hmm. this a good a good argument for putting this in yeah. so how about we say yes for now yeah, yeah I'm, I'm i'm digging that uh year walk i only mentioned this because i think it's a notable port i don't know much about this matthew do you have any experience with this yeah it's just like a smogo kind of weird like narrative horror puzzle experience where you're kind of walking through this snowy nordic forest meeting creatures from folk tales a, a really lavish a wii u port that they made with daku daku who also made scram kitty uh and his buddy on rails which was quite a fun uh downloadable shooter mm. um and yeah it, it just it just took a really good game and like elevated it above its other forms you know that it puts um like this sort of encyclopedia of folklore on the game pad it added some uh gyro controls you could write notes on the game pad i think it used gamepad speakers to have like a a kind of extra weirdness to the soundscape so it could kind of like play audio tricks alongside the tv whether it's maybe too niche to to include above some other things you know like i, I don't think it's quite as inventive as like affordable space adventures right but it's right. definitely a um wow they they made this game fit the wii u specifically which you know was quite a rare thing that's cool. Well, you know, it sounds like you've made your mind up. It's not quite there, but it's cool to at least have it yes. highlighted. It's a big Chris Schilling game, this one. Samogo's the Chris Schilling yeah. sort of uh, uh, yeah, joint, for sure. It's very different energy to Sayonara World Hearts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, moving on to Shovel Knight, which I think was notable. It came to Wii U, but it's just so owned by other platforms. It's a kind of like big indie thing. You can play it yeah. fucking anywhere. So it's a no, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, it's good, though. Yeah. Ash, a no? Yeah, awesome game. I think it was on 3DS first, to be yeah. honest. Mm, okay, let's yeah, move no. on then. Uh, Rodea the Sky Soldier. We go live <laughs> to Ashley Day um, for the take on this one. You big Rodea head, Ash. I, I do. I do own this game. Uh, I got the double pack, which came with the once-cancelled Wii version. Right. Um, uh, the, yeah. the Wii version was in development hell for years. I don't know exactly what happened, but they managed to kind of resurrect it as a bonus alongside the Wii U version. And they were very different versions of each other. Um, actually, the the Wii version was was the definitive version, sadly, so I'm not sure I could... I mean, this, this game isn't going to the Hall of Fame either, either way, let's be honest. Um, it was, you know, it was a, a nice little kind of flight action game. Everyone wanted it to be the next night. It wasn't, really. <laughs> Um, okay. a, a gaming footnote in history, I would say. Interesting. Enough said. Then it's a no. Uh, Mario Tennis Ultra Smash. That's a no, isn't it, Matthew? Yeah. All the all the gimmicks they added were just bullshit. Okay. We've come to what I think might be the last Hall of Famer. Uh, maybe Xenoblade Chronicles X. Uh, Matthew, I know this has got quite a, a complicated place in the series history for you, and it's not a beloved game by you. But should it be in this Hall of Fame? I did go back and revisit it um, around our Xenoblade episode, and while it definitely doesn't have the qualities of Xenoblade Chronicles One to Three, the open world of that game is a, is a real technical feat. It's quite a hard sci-fi vision, which is which is why I find it quite kind of cold and hard to get into. But actually, like spending a bit more time with it, chipping away with some of the sort of side missions, drawing out some of the the narrative content, which is kind of buried amongst something which seems a bit more kind of systems based from the outset. There's a lot to recommend this. I mean, it's uh, yeah, quite an uncompromising sci-fi open world RPG. Nothing else quite like it. 
if not for all the other masses of shit I have to play constantly for work and various other things, I'd be pumping a lot more time into this. I, yeah, I think it kind of has to be on there because it doesn't live anywhere else. No. And also, it was such a big part of being a Wii U fan was being excited for, for Xenoblade Chronicles X. Yeah, it's also the only one where I'm not totally convinced it will get off of Wii U. You know, like a, it, it might not make that leap. You, you know? think they would have done it if they were going to do it. Yeah, that's the thing. Zelda, I could see that's going to happen at some point, I think, because Skyward Sword happened. But but this, I don't know, man. It might just be tied to Wii U. Ash, your thoughts on this one? It's baffling to me that it's never been transplanted to Switch, uh, given the popularity of the Xenoblade series. My idle speculation is that maybe they feel it deserves more of a remake than a port mm-hmm. uh, to try and amplify some of the things that are great about it and... and you know, make up for some of its minor shortcomings. I think it's a, re- a really good game. Uh, the personally, for me, the like the um, the addition of these giant um, pilotable mechs um, really made it um, quite uh, interesting and unique compared to the rest of the series. I I never finished it, but I've never I've never finished any Xenoblade game. I I, I don't really have the stamina for it, so I don't know how much of a criticism that is. It might just be a personal thing, but. Um, yeah, I think I think it's pretty cool. It being hard going is not like a new take, so I think that's no. probably a fair fair response. Um, okay, so we have ten games here. I think we should fire through the last few. We have some notable ones still left, but I think like basically we're just looking for you know are there any arguments here for anything else? So 2016 we've reached now. Twilight Princess HD. Now I think a Hall of Fame only needs one Zelda HD facelift, and Wind Waker would be the one. What do you think, Matthew? It's definitely the bigger transformation. This has a lot of the subtle changes that Wind Waker also benefits from, but it it looks, to my eye anyway, more like traditional HD remaster. It's just like that earlier game, but without without as much fuzz. Yeah, I think that's fair. What do you think, Ash? Yeah, it, it's. I, I, th- I think Twilight Princess is a less. I think it's a lesser game than Wind Waker. I mean, they're both great games, um, and I, and I don't think the remake brings as many kind of visual improvements to Twilight Princess as Wind Waker did. Mm. Uh, so yeah, Wind, Wind mm. Waker's the the pick for me. Yeah, I hope it ends up on Switch, but uh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, for yeah, it doesn't quite reach the Hall of Fame. Pokémon Tournament is on Switch, and plus Matthew Pokémon fighting games like your idea of hell. This game, isn't it? Okay, that's a no. Star Fox Zero, really interesting game. <laughs> Played it today for the first time. Um, I don't think this is quite as bad as people say it is. Uh, has a lot of like t- sort of like uh, you know using the gyroscope gubbins and um, some baffling use of two cameras. Sometimes in- interesting and cool use of two cameras, but not always. Sometimes just plain confusing. And properly does make use of the Wii U. Um, you know the Wii's functionality in a way that makes it quite hard to get off of the plat, get it onto other platforms. Um, but the bits where you're not in an R wing are not nearly as good as the bits where you are in an R wing, and I don't mm. quite think it's good enough to reach Hall of Fame status, despite being an interesting Wii U artifact. Thoughts, Matthew? Whatever you think about the controls, just the look and the look of the thing, it's like so weirdly functional, you know? Cheap. Yeah, I don't want to say cheap. You know, yeah, but yeah, basically. It looks more tech demo-y than, I, than you'd hope the grand return of Star Fox would. I feel like that's a world which does need like a real sheen and sort of explosive energy to, to you know as part of its identity to kind of sell you on it. Mm. Um, 
And I almost felt like Miyamoto quite dogmatically thought, like, the controls, the controls, the controls. If you like the con- you know, that's the thing that's impressive about this game. That's the thing you're going to love about this game. And actually, it uh, underserves the kind of Star Foxness of it. That's fair, I think. It's, yeah, that's where it kind of like lacks. It's sort of, it's almost like a game as well, but the deeper you get into it, uh, some levels look better than others. Like Corneria at the start actually looks really nice, I think, as a kind of like, mm-hmm. you remember what it looks like on N64. But I think you get this with a few Platinum games where the first area looks incredible and then subsequent areas maybe a bit like, oh, uh, on the kind of like mud, muddy cliff planet and it's not very, <laughs> very shiny. Um, but it's not quite as bad as people say. The actual core no. playing an R-Wing stuff is absolutely fine, I think. Ash, what do you think of this one? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a huge Star Fox fan. Uh, so I, I tend to be more forgiving than most because I just have a great time whenever there's a new Star Fox game and I get to spend time in that world with those characters right. again. And, and I did think, actually, um, they managed to capture some of the spirit of Star Fox 64. You know, mm. it's sometimes when a new Star Fox game comes out, they go completely left field and it they kind of miss what was cool about just, like, the basic shoot 'em up action. Um, so... I, 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 th- I think in places it's really good fun to play. I don't mind the emotion controls. I don't love them, but I don't mind them. Um, but yeah. I, th- I think there are certain parts of the game where you're not doing that basic shoot 'em up action, and it's trying to innovate a lot more. That the pace of the game slows down quite yeah, a lot and drags. It's a real shame. They made such a big deal of the different vehicle functionality, and some of them are just so boring. Like the gyrocopter, it's just. Gyrocopter and the Walker just so much worse than using the basic R-wing functionality. So, yeah, holds it back. I'm told that some of the better levels in this are the the hidden levels, um, the other paths, um, and I haven't tested that yet. So uh, I don't know, but uh, yeah, sort of like the germ of what is good about Star Fox is still in this game, but it's just not quite as good as it should be. Um, mm. So I don't think it quite gets into the Hall of Fame as a result. Um, Star Fox Gardash, you have any thoughts on this one, Uncle Fucking Slippy Toads? Uncle Grippy. That's it, Grippy. Sorry, yes. What's um, what's the deal here? Oh God, um, <laughs> yeah, P- Platinum Games' most obscure uh, video game, possibly. Like, I don't know why it needs to be a Star Fox game. I think this was one of Miyamoto's. There was like, um, there was a period yeah. where Miyamoto was showing off in public um, experiments that would take advantage of the Wii U, and I think this was one of the few concepts yeah. that actually got released. So they put mm. the Star Fox license on it. Um, but yeah, not not yeah. that interesting. Okay, so we have no more yeses here, I don't think. Um, but I'm gonna like bundle them all together, then we can sort of pull out some thoughts. So we have got Mario and Friends Amiibo Challenge, Tokyo Mirage Sessions FE. That game would be a great Wii U Hall of Famer candidate had it not been put on Switch because yeah. it's quite a strange Fire Emblem uh, Shin Megami Tensei spinoff. Uh, Mario and Sonic at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. You know what we think of that. Um, Paper Mario Color Splash. And, of course, 2017's The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which was also a Switch launch game. And uh, even though I played it on Wii U, there's no functionality that's really tied to the Wii U, and therefore I don't think it can be called a Hall of Famer, even though clearly the game's entire intent was built around this console and like this was a kind of like north star game that nintendo was obviously walk- working towards throughout the um console's yeah. lifespan anything to pull out there matthew paper mario is kind of interesting in that it hasn't been ported to switch it's 
not horrible. Like I think people are super down on this period of Paper Mario in the middle. It has some of the problems of Sticker Star in that it kind of relies on this kind of gimmicky system where you collect these like giant objects for use in puzzles. And it also has a... Because it doesn't really have character levelling, a lot of people are like, what's the fucking point of any of it? Um, which is a bit of a bleak way of looking at a game which is actually stacked with like imagination and jokes and like really nice visual designs. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a late Paper Mario game apologist so um more of an oddity rather than a, a hall of famer how about you ash is there anything in here that's like deserves noting or discussing i don't think so i mean obviously breath of the wild is is a game for the ages but I, is there anyone who really thinks of it as a wii u game i i have a feeling based on old kind of promotional videos that they did that there were like things it did with the wii u gamepad that then got stripped out once they realized it was coming to switch um so there's probably a more interesting version of this game that exists uh somewhere um but yes yeah, it's, it's a switch game so I, I don't i don't think any of these really need to go on the list i honestly assumed for years that it did use the gamepad because yeah. it's so obvious how it would you were like oh mm-hmm. it's a shame the switch doesn't have the gamepad functionality and people are like oh it doesn't have any and you're like what the fuck really <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially as um like uh the like there's like a, a gamepad in the game yeah i mean there? yeah and it's just yeah it's mad Man. That's a t- that is a take that I've taken from you and repeated on this podcast multiple times, Ash, that you, you are literally carrying a gamepad around. And uh, it's such a simple <laughs> but obvious observation that, uh, yeah, it's good. Um, okay, yeah, so obviously lots of love for Breath of the Wild, but not quite making the list. And obviously, I think adding to that, Wind Waker HD's like, Wii U pad functionality hints at the, the idea they were already experimenting with that stuff. So clearly that was something they were thinking about for Breath of the Wild at some point. Um, okay, we have our 10-game Hall of Fame. So... Here we go. Is it cursed? <laughs> what is what cursed? Our list. Is it cursed? I can't remember. Uh, it's all right. It's fine. It's good. Yeah, it's a good list. I think it's. I think it works. Game and Wario is the one I kind of question a little bit, but going to go through them in order here. So, um, okay, we can obviously you know change anything we want to at the last minute. Yeah. Just going to fire them, fire through them. Number one, Nintendo Land. Number two, Zombie U. Number three, Game and Wario. Number four, The Wonderful 101. Number five, Rayman Legends. Number six, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker HD. Uh, Number seven, Affordable Space Adventures. Number eight, Splatoon. Number nine, Super Mario Maker. Number ten, Xenoblade Chronicles X. That feels basically right to me. Thoughts, Matthew? Uh, My only thought is, do we swap Game & Wario for Star Fox Zero? Might be a good shout, because it's just such an interesting curio. What would I rather... Some of Game & Wario's stuff is... In WarioWare Gold as well, I think. Oh, but oh, it's, oh, but I forgot Game of Warriors. That's the only game Ash still has. Sorry, I forgot that <laughs> element of it. <laughs> I, I think we definitely need a Nintendo Land or a Game of Wario in this. What do you think, Ash? Does um, if you could swap between the two, would you? Would you change anything else about the list? I don't think I'll change anything else about the list. I, I think I think it's a I think it's a good list of viable kind of. <laughs> semi-exclusives that uh, mm. that are a, a great reason to to play on the Wii U still today um, and I think it kind of ni- nicely also represents the taste of this uh, podcast and and it, it is you know suits your listenership so that's that's something the editorial's right <laughs> um, <laughs> Star Fox and Game and Wario yeah hmm it's a really tough one. I think I think a lot of the positives in Game and Wario, you probably some of the things are done much better in other WarioWare games, and some of the kind of other mini games, 
you know you can get similar experiences in for example super monkey ball and like jackbox party mm. pack mm. so i i wouldn't be against Star Fox going in as this like you know this is something that really you are not going to find anywhere else it's a it's a Star Fox experience you won't find anywhere else and I I, I would bet a lot of money it's never coming to any platform ever yeah I love it and I think people should play it to see what the hell they were doing with it like it's mm. worth it on that level I think um, <laughs> it was also kind of like the 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 last hurrah for the gamepad it, mm. it was a, it was it was the last remnant of you know any any real effort to innovate with with the technology um and i think that's that makes it interesting yeah i think chronologically the idea of like the gamepad's journey being starting at nintendo land on a list to ending with star fox zero has a quite a nice mm. neat arc to it so okay game and wario has been uh game wario has been muscled out matthew you okay with that yeah r.i.p the fronks <laughs> <laughs> uh Hashtag free the fronks. Is that what it was? What it was? Yeah, I think it's good. Um, okay, cool. Well, we've come to the end of this um, podcast. It's 48 minutes longer than I thought it would be, but I think it's been really good. Um, Ash, where can people find you on social media? Um, they can find me on Twitter. I am at JellyScare, um, where I'll mostly be retweeting Team 17 stuff and talking about retro games. Uh, also, check out my blog, Games from the Black Hole. Most recently did a game called Suzuki Bakuhatsu, which is a bomb disposal puzzle game on the PlayStation. Amazing. Ash's knowledge of retro games is like fucking 9,000% uh, sort of like greater than ours combined. So um, that's why you're so, so such a good guest, Ash. Will you join us again at some point? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely... I think I forgot to tweet out um, Games of the Black Hole last time, so I'll definitely do that this mm. time, um, point people towards it, um, because, yeah, you write some cool shit on there. Uh, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I am at Mr. Basil underscore pesto. If you like the podcast, patreon.com slash backpagepod. Two additional podcasts a month there at the XL tier. Backpagepod on Twitter. Uh, I don't recommend going to the Discord. <laughs> Decided to start throwing that in there. Um, I'm only joking, of course. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.